The Cultist presents Cinema of Cruelty. And this week, we ask the question, what happens when the ruling director of dark satire through excess turns his lens from violence to sex? What happens when the vehicle for such dark satirical visions is placed in the 20-year-old hands of a girl best known from the bright, happy daytime teen drama Saved by the Bell? One whose only worry until that point had been a brief but perilous brush with the dangers of caffeine. What about if we then throw in the highest-paid screenwriter of the day, one who specialized in the thrill of humanity's most basic instincts? Would an audience still flying high on the 90s playground of erotic thrillers and softcore cinema know what to do with a film that tried to use sexual exploitation to comment on sexual exploitation? Well, let's find out. Because today we are looking at Paul Verhoeven's 1995 film, Showgirls. So sit back and maybe get a little naked as we strip down Verhoeven's dark masterpiece to its shiny, sleazy, yet incredibly substantial core. Brought to you by All the possible meanings of the Vegas Strip The meat-cute of vomiting in the street The desperate aggression of sociopaths and sex work The Berkeley aesthetic and the volatile landmine of Paul Verhoeven's and screenwriter Joe Esterhaus's working relationship. And of course, our safe word today is caffeine. Anything to add, Benji? Uh, London, I'm just, I'm just amped up to talk about this movie. I am just psyched. I am so excited. I'm so excited. I'm so scared. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of space. Boy. I'm, I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. I see you shiver with anticipation. Oh my God! Disappointed. Jesus. Well. Oh hi, Mark. Oh, London. Hi, you're here. Yeah, I am, Benji. I am indeed. Okay, it's a stage name. Okay, I'll I'll out. I'll out. Mm -hmm. So, uh, London, what do we have going on today? So, as just mentioned, we, we have some showgirls going on today. And we've been excited about this one for a while. I think, I hope I got that across, <laughs> that I am pretty excited about this movie. One of the reasons I love doing this podcast is getting to analyze films like this. Granted, we've been analyzing this movie for a very long time. Our whole lives have been leading up to this moment. <laughs> I, I have been a very big fan of both Fairhoven for a really long time and this movie for a very long time. Well, yeah, London, let's get into that. How did we first hear about this film? I can't remember the first time I encountered Showgirls other than, as I just mentioned, Verhoeven has always been a part of my soul. I saw Robocop when I was young and immediately, even at a young age, just found it to be an amazing quasi-exploitation, quasi-satire on the commodification of the human body during Reagan-era types of policing and commerce and economics, and I realized I had to watch everything that this man had produced, and on that list was Showgirls. And I think it fits in with the rest of his work, which not everybody agrees with, but we will talk about why they're wrong and I'm right. 
I did not see this film, I think, until 2006 or so. In my childhood, I never saw it. I don't think I ever saw trailers for it or TV spots, but I do remember seeing the video cassette box to this at the local rental store in my hometown. That cover art stuck out so much because it's, you know, the famous uh, shot of Elizabeth Berkeley, and we just get this sliver of her body. And I can remember looking at that thing and thinking to myself, whoa, so technically she's nude, but you don't see any of the nude parts. Middle school age, you know, growing up in a small town with many things that were not explained to me, nor did I have access to. So just that cover was an eye-opening moment for me. And then around 2006, I was living with some friends of mine from high school, and I can remember renting this thing out of curiosity. And one of the roommates watching it with me is a fairly religious guy, and he doesn't have a problem with dirty movies, you know, if you want to call it, if we can call this a dirty movie. But watching this film, you could tell he was confused at times, thinking to himself, am I watching porn? I don't know if this is porn or not. Well, no, that is kind of the question, though, right, with Showgirls is, is it porn or not? Because there are two camps that approach this movie and still watch it and still love and adore it and camp being the potential key word to all of this yeah well there's also a lot of debates on whether or not this classifies as camp by traditional standards we may or may not get into that debate i don't know that one's a nuanced one so first we need to just establish whether this is satire before we can establish if it's camp and, and we are that hasn't been agreed on we are about nothing more if we are not about nuance here at Cinema of Cruelty. Exactly, and arguing with each other. But we've got camp number one, in which the audience celebrates this film as something that's so bad it's good. Right? And we have a lot of those on this cast, the so bad it's good. So we understand. Sure. Trolls 2 is a fine example of a so bad it's good film. No, that movie's just good. <laughs> that, that movie's just perfect. I don't know what you're talking about. So, yeah, we have the so bad it, it becomes fun to watch and it's hilarious and people watch it ironically or just sort of joyfully. And then there is the camp with this particular movie that it isn't so bad it's good. It's just good. That it is a purposeful, deliberate, very intricately chosen in its details film about exploitation, commodification of the female body, the capitalist nature of sex. These are all very Verhoeven themes. So there are a lot of critics that, especially now, decades after its release, really have kind of relooked at this film with new, fresh, serious eyes and concluded, wait a second, there's some really interesting stuff going on here. So I am... I'm obviously hardcore in that second camp, and as we go through the movie in the first half of this today, I will be pointing out some of the things that kind of set up that critical premise. I would say I'm in, sadly, the same camp as you are. Benji's a follower. Yeah. He follows wherever I go. You do. We happen to agree on things, and that's the bane of my existence very often. But I would say that the camp of people who say this is so bad it's good do not understand that these were not mistakes made in the film. I think that's how they look at it. Like, haha, they did this thing and it was the wrong choice. No, it wasn't the wrong choice in the movie. It's just that audience at the time did not understand what the hell was going on in this thing. I think they were 
clearly expecting something much more different than what this movie was. This movie does everything, well, most things right. I mean, no movie is perfect. The Patrol 2. I will die on that hill. <laughs> it's a, it is a short, foggy hill to die on. My cold, troll, consumed corpse will one day be found atop <laughs> the I Love Troll 2 hill. But no, I think we're both in agreement that this movie is exactly what it needs to be. There are some things I don't agree with the movie doing. We'll get into that. But overall, I thoroughly enjoy this film sincerely. Excellent. So with that disclaimer ahead, let's get into this film, I suppose. We start, as we always must, in rural Utah with our our, our main character, our main superstar, our main goddess, if you will, Nomi, as she begins to hitchhike to Las Vegas. Yes, uh, no opening credits as well. That's true, yeah. It's just fade up to Showgirls, the title, fade to Nomi Hitchhiking. Yeah, she's going to be quite aggressive from the very start. She is a woman in a leather jacket hitchhiking her way to Las Vegas, so this is not necessarily a surprise to a lot of us that she might have already become a little hardened by whatever life she has already lived. And yet this is one thing that critics who don't like this film did not like, was that she didn't start out sweet and innocent on her journey into Las Vegas. But people have lives, guys. People have lives before the movie starts. What I do like about this opening scene is that we immediately get this notion that she really does not like being called a whore or sex worker of any sort because the guy says, like, oh, one of them private escort dancers? Like, fuck you, no, just a dancer, dude. Knock it off. She also does not know much about country music because she immediately changes the radio saying she doesn't like Garth Brooks and the humor there is that it's not a Garth Brooks song that's playing. And so... Jesus saves! I just love that, that like while she's switching the radio, we briefly get another station and all that we hear from it is Jesus saves. Yeah, there's just a lot of really great, tiny little production details that go into this movie throughout. And yeah, this guy is going to take her all the way with him to Las Vegas and pull up in front of the Riviera Casino. This interior shot that's going to happen as he gives her $10 to go and gamble while he goes off to do something and convinces her to leave the suitcase in the car is actually the interior of the Riviera Casino. It's the one shot that they got in a Las Vegas casino. The Riviera was the only one that they approached that let them film there because of the racy content that was allegedly going to be in the film. The other casinos that they approached did not want to associate their casino with the film. I've always been curious if the contents of Nomi's suitcase were even worth $10. Yeah, I, I do wonder what she had in there, but it still is violating. I guess at the very least, she probably had a couple of other outfits, right? But it does come back. <laughs> Spoilers! <laughs> the start with this hitchhiking is going to be the beginning of our film, and it's also going to be the end of our film. And that sets me up to talk about something that I've always really noticed in showgirls and its deliberate setup as well as so in part of the preparation for watching this i did read adam Naiman's book it doesn't suck which is a quote as much as it doesn't suck can be a, a quote <laughs> from the film itself when molly kind of introduces crystal to nomi and says 
she's great, isn't she? And Nemi's like, she doesn't suck. So it's this kind of like, well, I guess, you know. But Naaman is going to bring up this point as well on mirroring that happens in this film in terms of there are so many parallel shots, there's so many sort of reflexive setups. And the very first one that sort of sets this up is that we are going to open and we're going to close in the same way. And that open and close is going to be hitchhiking with this exact same driver, this exact same blue pickup, and the conflict of the suitcase. And I'm going to be pointing out the mirroring along the way. So we'll, we'll just set that up now. Mirroring setup number one. There's also just a lot of mirrors in this movie. but There are also a ton of those, too. Yeah, there are about as many mirrors in this as there are windows in the snowman. Although the mirrors actually mean something here. I'll point out, as I can, the number of times that men seem to demand that Nomi be a sex worker because that happens quite quickly here. While Nomi is in the casino, she at first wins a jackpot on a slot machine and then loses all of that money very quickly, it seems. A man comes up to her and I guess, you know, just zeroes in on potential sex worker and says, hey there, honey, lost all your money? How do you think about making some of it back? Won't take any more than 15 minutes. Nomi begins to move off in a huff. Hey! You're gonna have to sell it sooner or later. Yeah, and that ends up being true. He's a prophet. He's the foreseer, soothsayer of this entire narrative. The Elijah of this film, if you will. Yeah, she already seems very defensive, once again, about the potential idea of selling sex or her body for money. And then she realizes, wait a second, this guy with my suitcase, he's been a while. What if he's stolen my suitcase? Runs out, finds that that is indeed true. And she just loses her shit. Begins smacking the hell out of a car. Remind me of the Street Fighter 2 bonus uh, levels where you just beat up a car. That's what Nomi's doing. She's going full Ryu on this thing. Oh my god, yeah! I forgot about the beating up the car in Street Fighter 2 until just this moment, but yeah, that was fun. But unlike the video game, Nomi is stopped by the car's owner, uh, Molly. Understandably upset that Nomi is beating the crap out of her car, and they kind of get into a fight, and Nomi just, like, in rage and in shock, I think, just she throws up. Yeah. Which, one of the things I watched for research on this was the documentary You Don't Know Me, a 2019 documentary that's now on streaming, and it shows clips from a lot of other Paul Verhoeven movies. Women throwing up seems to be a thing for Paul Verhoeven because it's in almost every film that he's done. Interesting. I don't think I've clocked that as a recurring motif. I don't know, maybe it's just something he's into. Uh, you know, whatever works. It's, uh, it's good storytelling, you know? You get an idea, like, yeah, I don't think this character's having a good day. They throw up. There you go. Nomi is understandably embarrassed and still enraged by everything that's happening to her. She's not having a good night. She then runs straight into the streets on the strip. Molly runs after her and yanks her away from narrowly being mowed down by a truck. They have this interesting moment. Oh my god, it's so great. The music starts to swell and everything kind of slows down into slow motion as their eyes meet and then they start to draw forward towards one another in this magical kind of meet cute love at first sight moment and then it's almost like Nomi 
realizes I just threw up and so she sidelines her mouth and kind of puts her head on her shoulder instead. Molly, she don't care about any of that bad breath or the fact that Nomi was beating the crap out of her car. What does Molly do? Molly gets Nomi some food because she clearly, she obviously has an empty stomach now. Because Molly's an angel. She really is. And one of the interesting things that's going to happen in the background of this scene is that as they are walking to this cafe food area, it is clearly Halloween in the background. So we have a bunch of Halloween decorations happening, and I think somebody says something about Halloween. And so there are ways to timestamp the passage of time in this movie by the holidays that are happening in the background. So they are meeting around Halloween. Molly has to, you know, check on Nomi and say, Are you, how you doing? Um, you got any family? No. Um, okay, where are you from? Different places. <laughs> All this is going on, and Elizabeth Berkeley is just, like, she stabs a straw into a big gulp like she is wanting to kill someone, understandably, right now. Puts ketchup on her fries like it's the blood in other Paul Verhoeven movies. And it is the angriest way to shake a ketchup bottle. And ketchup just goes flying. It's wonderful. She's really got these erratic just movements down. And so... This is possibly where we should start to introduce the idea that the biggest criticism this movie got, of course, was Elizabeth Berkley's performance. When I was researching the reviews for this, that got frustrating really quick for me because that's not a warranted criticism. I think that she's doing what this character would be doing. I know it seems over the top, but this is an over the top life. If you think that she's playing this incorrectly, you've ignored the rest of the movie. Yeah, and as we kind of go on to learn, Gina Gershon, first of all, is going to hint to Nomi a bunch of times that Nomi's on cocaine, and Gina Gershon recognizes that because she's also a coke user, when we also later learn that she has a history of drug abuse, particularly crack cocaine, this contextualizes her performance a little bit because Verhoeven was very explicit in his direction. You were on crack right now. <laughs> you were either going through crack withdrawals or you've recently, you know, freebased some of that. So erratic is just kind of built into the performance. There are also on the DVDs some of the quote-unquote diary of showgirls where it shows some of the snippets of filming and Verhoeven in each one of them pauses, he redirects, and he's really coaching Elizabeth Berkley into this performance. Mm -hmm. And so this is the performance that Verhoeven wanted out of her. And so it's really unfortunate, yeah, that so much criticism kind of got thrust on her. We'll get back to talking about Berkeley a little bit more later, but this is going to be one of the big scenes, once again, that people tend to point to as she's putting in a lot of emotion here. She's she's a volatile character. Not too volatile for Molly, though, who, angel that she is, says, hey, look, you can come stay with me for a little while until you get a job or can take care of yourself. It's okay. And Nomi <laughs> asks her, are you coming on to me? And Molly just smirks and is like, no. She is, though. She is. Cut to six. 
weeks later and we're in a trailer park six weeks later which timestamp wise puts this about two weeks before christmas and nomi and molly have been sharing this trailer and seemingly sharing one bed one twin bed because we will see different scenes of them sleeping individually in this particular twin bed at different times so this does seem to be the one bed that is in the trailer I, I ship these two really hard, so I'm gonna I'm gonna really lean hard on all those details. They are running around in bras, trying to kind of flirt wrestle over chips. A lot of people, and I will actually say that it's mostly men that I've seen critique this scene of, oh yeah, screenwriter has no idea what women do. This is some sort of fantasy about you know the women who kind of pillow fight in their free time. And that would be maybe all fair and good as a critique if these were two straight women. But what I'm picking up here is some flirtatious energy that they're still kind of building, flirting around this relationship a little bit. And I find it adorable. I'm, I'm into it. But I also am really, really into Molly. So I would totally try to use Chips as an excuse to get closer to her. Absolutely. In the background of the scene, there's an Andrew Carver poster, which we might as well hear like a... Yes, she, Molly's a, a number one fan of this dude with really long hair and smoldering eyes who's apparently some sort of rock star. In this universe, yes. I, I always, when I was first seeing this movie or the first few times I saw it, I would sometimes refer to this guy as not Michael Bolton. Uh, but considering what this guy is all about later on in the movie, even that comparison just doesn't seem fair to uh, Mr. Bolton. Yeah, see, I consider him as, like, other Rex Manning, because it <laughs> is set up in a similar way as in Empire Records, where for the longest time just in the background, there's going to be these Rex Manning cutouts, and it's Rex Manning Day, and so this guy's going to be coming soon to the Star dust lounge or whatever. Molly invites Nomi to come with her to work for a brief moment that evening to see the whole backstage area and we get this, the next scene is really cool because it's all one shot. Easily the best thing about this movie is, for me personally, is its cinematography. It's so beautiful and the first time that we go to the dressing area for the Stardust Hotel we get this like continuous shot where we're moving around very good wide angle and everything and it's really putting you in the shoes of Nomi who's taking all of this in and just thinking to herself whoa wow this is so glamorous and so wild and crazy this is really cool we get some backstage you know fighting between some dancers uh, Molly is told by another dancer uh, by a dancer named Annie that she needs to fix her outfit otherwise we're gonna see Annie snatch snatch that's the word they're using here. Snatch. Well, apparently, okay, so this randomly came up in the trivia that I read for this, is that Verhoeven was very strict on adhering to the script for the most part, but the actress here refused to use beaver, which is what was in the script, and she <laughs> wanted to use snatch. <laughs> and it's a, a smiling snatch is what she changes it to from smiling beaver. A smiling snatch at least has a little bit more of an alliteration. I, I do approve of the change. I personally obviously don't have a problem with them saying snatch over, well, saying snatch is one thing. The fact that they just keep saying snatch 
over and over again is where it gets a little absurd. Yeah, but that's part of the excess, right, of this film, where everything is sort of repeated and thrown at you so much that it all becomes a rather just desensitized state of existence. And Verhoeven will actually comment on this in an interview at some point when asked about the nudity, and he just was very dismissive of it. Like, nah, you kind of get just used to and numb to the nudity in this film about 10 minutes in. Yeah, I agree with that. That's That makes sense. You should be used to the nudity in this movie because that's the story and that's what you have to be, you have to deal with is that this is a world where people are nude a whole lot. Uh, one of the things I loved that I found was an interview with Elizabeth Berkeley when she was on David Letterman and it was concerning making the film and she said, yeah, I was nude most of the day for about four months while we were making this thing and I, first day, went up to the crew and said, Hi, you guys are going to see me naked a whole lot. I would appreciate it if you just got used to it and treated it as your day job, you know, really quickly. I also heard that Elizabeth on set a couple of times, as an insistence to make the women more comfortable, asked for a lot of the male crew members to take off their shirts while going around and doing stuff. Like, if we're naked, like, you're going to have to be naked, too. And I was like, that's kind of fun. To give you an idea of this being a theme in Paul Verhoeven's work, in Starship Troopers, there's a infamous uh, shower scene where the future men and women share the same shower, and everyone was really nude for it, including Paul Verhoeven. I didn't know Paul Verhoeven did that scene nude. Amazing. Was he saying it was to make the rest of the cast more comfortable, camaraderie? Or I think Verhoeven probably is just like... Nah, it's wet in here. I might as well not fuck up my clothes. Because he seems like a dude that would just be fine to be naked all the time. The story that he tells on the commentary to Starship Troopers, it's something like, uh, they were very, you know, nervous about being nude during all of this. So I said, I will take off my clothes with you and I will be nude with you. And we did one take of that. And then after the take, they said, okay, put your clothes back on. We will stay nude. <laughs> That's great. I love that shower scene, actually, in uh, Starship Troopers, because it's so desexualized. It's just, there's nothing purposefully erotic about the lens of the camera. Everyone's just washing down. It's pretty great. True. We get our first glimpse of uh, Crystal at one point. She's getting ready. Yeah. Uh, they're getting ready yeah. to head up the steps. I think someone says, oh, could you imagine falling down these steps? Foreshadowing. Yes. This movie was one of my sexual awakenings as a child because Gina Gershon was one of my first great loves as a child and, and she's maintained a steady place in my heart like I have always been super attracted to Gina Gershon and I think it was Showgirls that did it she's such a wonderful bitch in this I sadly I need to watch more films with her I the only other thing I can remember seeing her in is that Matthew McConaughey movie that you showed me where she killer joe killer Fuck joe yeah. yeah she gives him the chicken wing blow job yes she does because she's so fucking great <laughs> man she deserved some sort of award for that scene because my god she committed yeah no she's she commits and she's always great and in this she's sort of our high-powered bitch goddess i guess and we are going to get the first setup of the very strong mirroring number one so nomi is going to go up out to the showing room and Crystal is and all the rest of the showgirls are going to go out on the stage and Nomi is going to watch parallel to them 
And she's going to start mimicking the dance movements because mm -hmm. she's visualizing herself up there and she seems to be able to mimic the dance moves quite a bit. This is another criticism I've seen is just this kind of tongue-in-cheek throwaway of, oh, look, Nomi just automatically knows this dance. And I'm like, well, one, these are not very complex dance moves. No. So, two, if you are a dancer, you can see those moves, and yeah, you can mimic them. That's kind of what dancers are trained to do, is just see these basic dance moves and go like, okay, I can mimic this back to you very quickly. So that just tracks. I've been exposed to that realm a little bit myself in my theater background, and that is what you're expected to do. It's kind of like saying... Uh, here, you know the alphabet, spell this word. Yeah. Like, you're just expected to know, like, okay, this is how you put these things together. Like, we will show you the moves. You know how to make these moves happen. Go. So, yeah, Nomi has that same kind of background herself. And so, yeah, it's just, it's a dancer thing. And we have that with Naomi here, is that she's mimicking or she's mirroring. Watching the show, which the show itself is interesting. I get, it's called Goddess, and I kind of get it. We have this primordial uh, you know, volcano area with uh, dancers around, and the goddess is revealed emerging from a volcano, and the announcer tells the audience, ladies and gentlemen, the Stardust Hotel is proud to present Miss Crystal Connors! Ah! And everyone starts stripping and getting horny because the goddess has arrived. So I would want to see this show. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist. Yes, yeah, so the shows apparently like this did exist. Joe and Paul, they were doing their research. They spent a lot of time in Las Vegas, going to strip clubs, going to hotel shows to try to get things as accurate as possible, which is sort of an interesting thought here. And then afterwards, we're going to get a little bit of a reporter hour where Crystal Connors is getting interviewed by reporters in terms of her position here at the hotel and her position in the show. Of course, the first question that comes up is, how old are you, right? So there's this aggressive thing from the press of how much longer are you going to be a hot piece of ass for us to oogle over and when can we expect you to retire? So we already have that sense of this aging starlet and somebody also brings up Broadway. Have you ever been on Broadway? Do you want to be on Broadway? And so we're also getting the setup of the gradation of quote-unquote respectability in performance venues, where the people who are at the hotel showgirl show are a step down, perhaps, from sort of stage acting, or that would be her next sort of point of mobility. In the way that we're going to have Nomi, who started to work at a strip club, her next step of mobility is at this hotel show. So there's just kind of this like lineage of performativity and where people might end up. The question of her age is interesting. In an interview that with Gina Gershon, she said that she was confused who she was auditioning for when she first read the script and got it from her agent. She said that she read it and said to herself, okay, I'm too old to play this Nomi character, but am I really old enough to be this Crystal character? I'm a little confused by that one. Yeah, how old was she when she was filming Showgirls? Early to mid-30s. Yeah, she would have been like 32, 33. Which, at the time in 95, there was this kind of idea formulating and sort of cosmopolitan and whatever that 30s were the new 20s, that you could still be hot at 30. But it really wasn't until the 2000s with this idea of you could still be hot at 40, right? So I would say that showgirling in your 30s probably was pushing it 
at the time. I do like that the owner of the Stardust is telling the press, we could have brought anyone on for this. Suzanne LaToya. I, I have no idea who Suzanne is. I assume he's talking about when he says LaToya. I assume that he means LaToya Jackson, who oddly enough did do a video centerfold thing with Playboy around the time that this film was made. So that's not too far off that LaToya Jackson would be in a topless review show. And later they're going to, when they need to replace Crystal, they'll pitch Janet Jackson and Paula Abdul. So there's this kind of idea there once again of the gradation scale of (laughs) what is true art, what is true performance, what is sexually exploitational, with this idea that people who might have been past their height in their career might then start doing Vegas shows. Many of them do, actually. So (laughs) this was not beyond the realm, especially if we also then think of who was potentially up to be cast in the role of Crystal Connors. Were people like Madonna read the script for it um, and a couple of other individuals like that? And so is there a huge difference you're going through all the performative motions of gyrating completely naked on a stage, but you're doing it for the sake of cinema instead of the sake of a hotel show. Is that somehow an elevated form of nudity or does that exempt the exploitation angle because you're doing it for a movie instead of a hotel show? There's this sort of complexity here that really gets all twisted up, which is sort of standard Verhoeven fare, really. It's a both critique but utilize whatever it is that he's doing whether it's violence or sex or what have you so exploitation the complexities of exploitation after the press conference crystal heads back to her dressing room molly is called back and pulls nomi back with her they go to see crystal in her room crystal has some flowers sent from andrew carver molly says i love andrew carver dun 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 Uh, Crystal has complained that her top is too tight. Like, my tits are being crushed in this top, honey. I want my tits to pop. I don't want them to explode. She doesn't want them to look like they're levitating. Which There you go. Don't want them to look like they're levitating. No one likes levitating boobs. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, finding the perfectly supportive bra is a a constant struggle for most women. So I I get her. And we're going to have mirror number two shot here where... Nomi's actually going to first meet Crystal in person through a mirror. So we're going to get the shot of Crystal sitting in front of her mirror and Nomi's going to enter the frame and they're going to meet eyes through that reflexive glass and make their introductions to one another. And the entire scene is going to play out with this shot, with Crystal and Nomi speaking at each other through the mirror. And it's very cool. It's both... Super on the nose and also subtle at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) And we get the beginnings of the power struggle, mostly surrounding Nomi's nails, those nice nails. And everything like, I do them myself. And, oh, well, maybe you can do mine sometime. Then this idea of the power struggle through both the status symbol of having great nails, but then the lower status of having to do your own nails, and then the even lower status of doing somebody else's nails. There's these weird power plays that are going to happen between these two characters, and it's fun and fascinating to watch them play out. And we also get this further accusation of Nomi being a whore or sex worker or what have you when 
Molly says, yeah, Nomi, she's a dancer at Cheetahs. And Crystal scoffs and says, look, I don't know what it is you're doing or how good you are, but if it's at the Cheetah, it's not dancing. And Nomi, you know, she's like, just kind of takes that stride and says, well, you know what, you're, you're entitled to your opinion. That's how you see it. Uh, I see it a different way. I'm kidding. Of course, she screams out, you don't know shit, and then runs off. And goes and kicks another car, because that's her M.O. She likes to kick some cars. I think it's Molly's car. Again, when she, the next scene, they're walking out. Molly's like, Nomi, I need my paycheck. Could you not piss off my boss? Nomi screams out, I'm sorry, and pounds on a car. And it's the same car they get into. So I think she hit Molly's car again. Yeah, Molly's car takes a lot of abuse through this. But once again, Nomi might have some things going on in her interior that makes it hard for her to regulate her emotions. And this is fine. She's also wearing some really amazing double-decker disco ball earrings in this scene. (laughs) And they're great. Then we cut to a club because Nomi's all worked up from being called a prostitute. And so she needs to go dance off that energy in a club. She's like, fuck going to work. I don't want to. I'll make up some excuse, and we're just going to go dance instead. We're going to go dance at the Laser Light Show Club because they're just awesome lasers going all around the the smoky area. Nomi's dancing. Her movements are violent, and her arms are swinging out a whole lot. She's thrashing about. What is curious is that Elizabeth Berkeley is actually a trained dancer, and she did ballet prior to this movie. She was in some ballet productions. It'd be one thing if she was an actress that didn't have any dance experience and this was the choreography that was given to her, but she is a trained dancer. And so this scene does stick out even to me as a very curious choice, not only for her, but when James joins her and dances with her later, he also is going to do these really weird dance moves that are similar to hers. Oh, James. Yes, this is where we meet James. Uh, We have these moments of what I called informed attributes where other characters say wow she can really dance yeah she can really dance all right let the audience decide if she can dance that's why this is even better is because the first person says wow she can dance can't she and james's response is she thinks she can And that's what's amazing, is it's not Uh, setting up that the other characters are supporting, wow, this girl can dance amazing. It's confirming for the audience that, no, she thinks she can dance. She's dancing with wild abandon. But there might be something here going on that's actually prohibiting her from reaching a specific type of more trained, reined-in dancing. And we're going to get that confirmed by James again when they are dancing. And she's going to validate him by saying, wow, you really can dance. And he's like, I know, I don't lie. You can't, though. And she's like, well, then what am I doing? He's like, well, you're teasing my dick is what you're doing, but you're not dancing. And that is a very core premise to the dancing in this film is where do you draw the line right between just sex and motion and dance because it's going to come up with this idea of she dances at the cheetah so it's not dancing but is it that different than what the showgirls are doing on the stage when she dances with james later on at his place it kind of devolves once again into the like are they practicing dancing or is this some sort of foreplay ritual and so that line of yeah is it dancing or are you just like teasing my dick is going to be 
a thing that we are going to ask throughout the rest of the movie and have already been asking. So it's a cool scene, actually. I was thinking about bringing this up later on or talking about it, but I'll just say, fuck James. James is the fucking worst. Oh, God, yeah, James is the worst. Good. He's okay. We say that like he'll say, uh, oh, you know, she thinks she can dance. And then later on, like, yeah, I can dance. You can't, though. This could be a thematic thing. It could also just be him nagging her a lot. Well, it also, those aren't mutually exclusive options, right? <laughs> I mean, it's still a dick thing to say regardless. And he still is yet another person who is trying to manipulate her and commodify her for her body because he is going to stalk her consistently throughout the rest of the film, or at least like until about, you know, three fourths of the way through the film. He's going to show up at her house. How did he know where she lives? How? Well, this is so another interesting statistic at the time of this movie, 70% of people who work as strippers had reported being followed home by somebody that knew oh. them from the club. 42% had filed stalking charges against oh somebody in their life. So this is something that strippers have to deal with are assholes like James that are like, I'm attracted to you and I think I could do something with you. So that entitles me to just invade your personal space constantly under this guise of trying to save you. It's really gross. <laughs> this guy is the absolute fucking worst. He tells her that she's, you're teasing my dick. Like, no, dude, she's just trying to dance on her own until you came by and made about teasing your dick. Whatever. Uh, Nomi accidentally or not accidentally knees him right in the groin. Not accidentally at all. She just <laughs> she goes for it. Nomi knew what the hell she was doing. He doubles over, backs into some guys. A fight starts. There's a little bit of a brawl there, and Nomi just kind of laughs and watches the world burn a little bit. It's kind of actually beautiful. I love it when she gets sinister in this movie. But then some people come over and grab her and say, oh, it's her. She started it. What? No, she didn't, but she's taken to jail regardless. Yeah, she gets thrown into the the holding cell overnight, looking very much like everybody else who's in the holding cell that seem to be implied to probably be variant forms of sex workers. Well, it turns out James bailed her out and immediately thinks that he is owed something. Asshole, you're the reason that she's in jail. It was your civic duty to bail her out because uh, nobody's got to go to work that night. At the cheetah. Yes, and we get this really great master shot here that shows the position of the cheetah to the Stardust Hotel. And it appears that they're pretty much right next to each other. The, the cheetah is in sort of the back parking lot shadow of the Stardust. It, it's well and, done. I, I don't. I couldn't really tell if that was a composite shot of some sort or if there really is a place called the Cheetah that's within eyeshot of the Stardust Hotel. Because the Stardust at the time was a real hotel casino in Vegas. Uh, it was uh, demolished in 2006, though. Okay, yeah, and so I know that the Cheetah was an actual strip club in Las Vegas at the oh. time because it was involved in this case where it was caught bribing political officials <laughs> a whole bunch of money. And so, yeah, I don't know if they were actually right next to each other or not. That, that could be some legit geography that were being shown there. That, that's kind of cool. Well, this also does contextualize why, before I caught that master shot, I always found it curious that all of the dancers at the Stardust, whenever they were being derisive about strippers, would be like, well, it's better than the Cheetah, right? Or blah, oh. blah, blah, the Cheetah. I'm like, is this the only strip club that you guys know? Like, why is 
the cheetah your go-to like version of like kleenex for tissue right like well, how has the cheetah become your synecdoche for every other strip club but it makes sense that they are comparing themselves to the cheetah specifically if it's right next door so that geographic location becomes important in that way too other than just symbology of being in its shadow Makes sense, yeah. But yeah, they're talking about boobs in the dressing room. We get a little bit of Mama's act, uh, Henrietta Mama Bazoom, and it's such a strange act. It's this stand-up that is just insulting to women. Yeah, so we're going to get a whole bunch of stuff right here that really pushes very hard on what to some people is some very cringeworthy misogyny. Well, I guess to everybody it's cringeworthy misogyny, but for... One camp is for no reason, and for the other camp is this is where we really get some of the exploitation satire shining through, because we first have the boss of the club that's talking to Penny and saying, oh yeah, by the way, if you want to last more than a week here, you're going to have to give me a blowjob. That's just going to have to happen. And she's all, wait, are you serious? And he's like, yeah, first I have you get used to the money and then I make you swallow. This kind of very deliberate, like, yeah, this is how this works. And then he also is going to give her the breakdown speech of, okay, so you can touch them, but they can't touch you. This is the very innocent penny, just learning the rules of this club. You can touch them, they can't touch you, unless they give you a big tip. This idea of if they come all over you, that's not cool unless they tip you a lot of money. And he really needs to establish what a big tip counts as. Are we talking $100, $200? What? That needs to be a very clear tipping point. Indeed. I mean, there's, there's some, yeah, negotiable parameters here, but we're also, this is a very deliberate moment of setting up the capital commodification of sex in the body. There's the oh, well, we have some rules and regulations, but it's really a monetary rule and regulation. That it's not about ethics, it's not about legality, it's not about your comfort, it's about how much you're getting paid to do it. This is another thing that Verhoeven has spoken in interviews about in their research into the strip clubs at Las Vegas. They went to a bunch of them. This is what they found to be the hard set rule in all of the strip clubs that they went to. This was not something that they just kind of imposed into this world. This was like, no, this was the rule that we were told by strippers and strip club owners alike and the bouncers is that what you can and can't do really depends on how much money you're willing to pay. Ah, okay. So that's like this, we look the other way in this event kind of situation. Um, And then we're going to cut right to, yeah, this sort of insult comedy and humor. And we're going to have this woman as the mouthpiece for what these men want to hear. Just sort of thrown out there like the, you know what they call the useless skin around the twat? A woman, right? And all of the audience of the strip club are just going to crack up, they're going to laugh, they're going to cheer, they're going to cheer at her insulting her own body. And so there's going to be all of these like things that are her voicing the inner workings of the minds of these men of, yeah, women are this useless commodity. Now, here are some of them dancing naked for you. And it's, <laughs> for those of you people who take this movie as satire, that's a, a comfortable moment in a different way, because 
realizing the duality of the fact that she's kind of out there saying like, yeah, to you, these women are nothing but worthless entertainment. Hey, members of the strip club audience. Also, hey, members of the audience out there in the theater or at home in the box office, here's what you came to see, right? A bunch of naked women gyrating on a pole, like cut to like the entrance of Elizabeth Berkeley going to do this dance for us. And so it's, like, Verhoeven constantly says that his work is an attempt to hold up a mirror to life and do it in a very non-dogmatic way. And people who sort of reject this is like, oh my god, this movie's so misogynistic, I think are the people who are missing the fact that, you no, know, we are misogynistic, yeah. right? We're watching this movie, and if we're watching <laughs> it, not for the satire, but for the naked women, like, that's us. You're the one that chose to watch a movie called Showgirls. What did you expect? Yeah, it's like, did you not want the commentary with it in terms of like what this means about you and your participation within this commodification culture? Yeah, I think that uh, a common criticism of this movie is that people would often say, I've never seen a movie with so much sex that's so not sexy. And they say that as if it's a mistake on Paul Verhoeven's part, but it's very clear that was the intention. It's not sexy. No, it's not, because you are being told that this is commodified sexuality over and over again. You know, compared to, say, pornography or anything that's titillating, you're just shown naked women or you're just shown sex, and that's all that you're shown. Pornography does not cut back and forth between an act of sex and a bunch of people off to the side going, oh, yeah, that's nice. Unless you're watching one of those pornos where the camera guy never shuts up. Yeah, or they don't see the actors walking around ahead of time naked and wiping the sweat off of their body or blowing their nose right before they go back on to, to shoot the sex scene. So, But we get that with showgirls. We get them walking around behind in the back room also just as naked. So then when they come out on stage, it's not as titillating because we've been <laughs> seeing this over and over again. So it's just this reduction of the body and the labor force. Very similar to RoboCop, but just instead of like violence, it's sex. And it's really interesting. It's been said before, but yes, as a as a country, America is way more cool with violence than it is sex in film. I think it's also, and we'll kind of get into this as well, it's more used to or comfortable with reading satire in violence than it is sex. Very true, So yes. Then we get mirror num- moment number three. Crystal is going to bring Kyle MacLachlan into this strip club, and they are going to sit opposite her. And so instead of earlier where Nomi was watching Crystal on the stage, now Crystal is watching Nomi on the stage, and she's also going to mimic some of her dance movements from the chair. Crystal is watching Nomi with all the lust that a woman can watch with. Yeah, she she likes what she sees, but she also wants to maintain some sort of power here when she can tell that her sort of boyfriend, lover, whatever he is to her, uh, is really into Nomi. And she's all like, you like her? I'll buy her for you. So it's this very power move of, I am above her in this positionality. I can I can purchase her for you. And Zach's like, well, the stripper that just licked that pole? Her? Oh my God, yes, please. Yeah, that was apparently an ad-libbed moment from Elizabeth Berkley. <laughs> the choreographer did not put that lick in there. Elizabeth just went for it. And in the musical, there's a song called Don't Lick the Pole. And it's just a song about all the diseases that Nomi just got from licking the pole. Yeah, she's a dirty <laughs> girl. I like it. And so she's going to get off the stage and be shopping around. 
fun, weird, little intricate detail. The guys that she goes over and approaches first to try to see if they want a private dance, they were the guys that started the fight in the club the previous night. These assholes that got her arrested, she now has to play nice with again, right, and try to sell herself to. Oh, weird. I didn't I didn't notice that. It might just be like a fun sort of subtle world-building detail that you could either, you know, absorb or not. But Crystal is going to up the price and offer her a lot of money for a private lap dance. One odd thing about this, though, is that she's, Crystal first says, uh, yeah, we'd like to you know, get a lap dance from you. And Nomi has to tell her, uh, no, we don't do that. Only one of you and no women. And I thought, no women? That's a lot of money you're throwing away there, Nomi. I couldn't tell if that was like this alleged club rule, which seemed really weird, because why would the club care if yeah, that'd be crazy. happening? I've never heard a club to, like, say no, because once again, like, if you're willing to, as a club, be like, anybody can do anything they want to as long as they pay enough for it, that can include couples that want a private dance, right? Yeah. So, what I've sort of read this as, and this goes into kind of the queer reading throughout the film for me, is that Nomi seems to only demonstrate clear markers of actual genuine attraction to women. She seems to have a certain relationship with Molly, and when she has those eye-fucking moments with Gina Gershon, there's a genuine attraction there. She doesn't seem to have that with any men in the film. The men that she sort of performs for are very performative. So I'm wondering if this is a rule for her that she tends to keep her actual sex and sexuality separate from her business of selling sex. And so men are consumers, they are customers. What she does with them probably has nothing to do with what she actually wants to be doing. And then she seems to be more reserved with how she interacts with women when it comes to any sort of power or money exchange. And so that actually is fairly consistent throughout, so that's my only possible takeaway from why she wouldn't want to have women participate. I can dig it. I mean, I also, there's, you can say there's the theory that she's throwing this rule out there just so that she doesn't have to give a lap dance to Crystal because there's already animosity there, but who knows? But also attraction. Also, Kyle MacLachlan's hair, though. The flock of seagulls cut. Yeah, flock of seagulls, Kyle MacLachlan. Oh, my God. He's got these side swept bangs <laughs> that he kind of peers out of with, like, the one eye. So he, is, he is so delightfully sleazy in this movie, and I, I will have a theory on why he is as sleazy as he is later on. All right. I'm curious. So then we're going to get the gyrating tornado of a lap dance. I loved how so many reviews I saw of this, like, critiqued the lap dance. And I thought to myself, why is every movie critic suddenly an expert on lap dances? Well, there might be a reason, but... <laughs> no one ever says, like, that's unlike a lap dance I've ever got. They just say, oh, that lap dance looks ridiculous. Like, how do you know? That lap dance looks super fun. It actually looks, more than anything, insanely athletic. Is yeah. What it really looks like. It's like, shit, the core muscles on that girl. But this is going to be another interesting setup for a mirroring scene. It's going to be a half of a mirror that will be repaid later. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, what she seems to actually be doing with the really aggressive gyrations is she does get him off. And most 
adult males need a certain amount of vigorous stimulation if you're going to fully achieve orgasm. So if anything, it's actually kind of impressive that she seems to, yeah, really be able to rub one out. She's got that magic grind going on. And what I really like about this whole thing is that it's, she's grinding on uh, Zach, played by Kyle McLaughlin, but this is, everything is directed emotionally at Crystal, and it's a dynamic I absolutely love. Yeah, using Zach in this moment to have this interaction, she's sort of showing off a little bit of her prowess. It's definitely egregious and over-the-top in some ways, but once again, in the way that violence is egregious and over-the-top in RoboCop, it would make sense that this is the sex version of the violence in RoboCop. Of Like, you want this, like, here you go. What becomes also uncomfortable when we think of this duality of what's happening inside the film versus meta-textually on the audience level is that Elizabeth Berkley what was she, like 19 at the time? Uh, she was in her early 20s. So, yeah, you have this 22-year-old actress that's she hasn't been in a whole lot of movies yet. This is her big break in her career, and the guy's telling her, like, no, you have to strip down and do this naked. That's, once again, this curious commodification of somebody's real body that's happening here and for monetary exchange and entertainment value. And so stuff is happening. Then... We have a really great little, like, power dynamic situation where Gina Gershon goes to pay her, and she's counting out the money, and she's trying to affect this power of, yeah, bitch, like, I'm just paying you money to do this, you're my whore, and then Elizabeth Berkeley has this great look on her face of, I feel really powerful right now because I just made your boyfriend come in his pants in, like, five <laughs> seconds. Yeah. And you're paying me $500 to do it. $100 a second. See note a second, bitch. Yeah, it's this curious, like, power dynamic of which one is more powerful, right? To pay for sex or to be paid for sex. And I think they do a really nice job in this moment. The only thing that annoys me about the scene, it's nothing to do with the lap dance, but it's the fact that James follows them back a little bit and is spying at them through, like, the, the beaded curtain. I just think myself where the fuck is the security here this is a shitty private dance room if like some random guy can just walk back and stare at things going down well it's also kind of a shitty private dance room because if you look behind them in this scene there are two other men in their own little <laughs> yeah. velvet cubicles getting private dances but they're all in the same room and so i mean this clearly is a strip club that they filmed at and this is the setup but it's it's only semi-private but yeah, James being a creeper and super entitled about it, it's just like, I feel a Fuck connection James. to this woman, so I'm just going to creepily go and spy on her private dance. Oh, God. This is like the character from you, like falling in love with a stripper. Like, I have to protect you. Yeah, you I have were. to get you into some good dancing. Because um, then he's going to show up at her house, knock on her door, and say, You've got a lot of promise. You got a lot of potential. I could show you the way. He does a, a full on Brita. I lived in New York thing where he's like, I studied in New York, man. I studied at these schools. You got so much natural talent. And I could help you, baby. And you're like, This is really violating. Again, James is the fucking worst. He is the worst. And so then we're going to have Molly and Nomi out shopping. She's going to buy a Versace dress. And Molly even tells her, hey, girl, I could make this for you. I am a costume designer and maker. Yeah, which is really impressive when you think about it. But 
she wants it as a status symbol, right? She's like, no, I have the money and I want something with a label on it because somehow it's an upgrade. And the way that the showgirls hotel performance is somehow an upgrade, even though is it? Is she actually doing anything different or is there just a certain glamour thrown on it? This is the dress version of that. If Molly makes an exact replica, is it actually different or does it matter that there's a Versace or Versace label on it? She concludes that yes, the label matters and so she buys it. All about that superficial labeling, huh? Interesting. I wonder if that fits into a theme. And I wonder if we'll get a mention of, oh my God, there's an Andrew Carver poster outside that Molly goes crazy over because she's just, oh, she's so into him. (laughs) Prior to this, there's this brief mention of one, uh, Molly is apparently going to school. She aced a test. She's like four more classes and they'll have to give me that degree. But she also says, man, I need to get laid. It's been six months. I can barely thread a needle. Oh, poor girl. Yeah. It's, it's like, just... Nomi's right there, girl. Just go for it. <laughs> we have a brief scene back at the cheetah where Nomi is dancing and a guy that she that saw her earlier is with the stardust, gives her cards like, come on, audition. You just have it. And he walks away with sunglasses on, which in a strip club just seems dangerous. Well, she also at that moment, so he, he's like, she's like, oh, you just happened to approach me. He's like, yeah, I saw you dance. And I was like, you got audition. And she becomes immediately suspicious of that because even she feels like this is not appropriate audition dancing. So she's internalized that somehow it's different. And so she immediately concludes, Crystal sent you, didn't she? And he kind of sort of admits like, yeah, she did. Now she appears at the audition or arrives at the audition and we get that great lineup scene of all of the people who are there lining up in a straight line and the guy who's gonna hand pluck which ones are gonna be in the show comes out and this to me is where we get the clearest scenes of deliberate satire about commodification and the disposability of female bodies okay ladies i'm tony moss i produced this show some of you have probably heard that i'm a prick i am a prick i got one interest here and that's the show I don't care whether you live or die. I want to see you dance, and I want to see you smile. I can't use you if you can't smile. I can't use you if you can't show. I can't use you if you can't sell. Yes. Thesis statement. That is the thesis statement of the movie right there. And it's so great. And so then he's going to go down the line, and he is going to critique the major flaw with each of them in his eyes. One of them has boobs that are too big. One whose ears stick out too far, one who's had too many classes, all of these things. And he's just going to go down the line. And once again, I've seen critics and fans or kind of anti-fans alike that have said this is possibly the sleaziest, worst scene in the movie. I'm like, once again, that's maybe the point. Buy the ticket, take the ride. This sort of dismissal where each woman takes this criticism just at face value and goes off. We even get the one that's like, I, oh, I, I recognize you. I told you to get your nose fixed and it looks like you did. You know, nice, nice work there, but now you need to go fix your ears, right? So she turns around to go do that. And that is not uncommon in a performative industry to just sort of keep trying to please. Yeah, they're amping up this guy's attitude towards the women, but this is... 
This is exactly how auditions go for anything open call. I've been to auditions like this before where you'll they'll just go down the line and say, okay, uh, you can stay, you can go, you can stay, you can go. I've never really seen anyone say, like, uh, you can leave. How dare you come here in the first place? Get out, you know, because the people who are doing the who are running these auditions don't really have the time to stop and give critiques to anyone as they're going. They're like, we just need to get the people that we want to want to stay and move ahead with the yeah, audition. Because there's plenty of more bodies. Yeah, it's exaggerated, maybe, but it's not unheard of. I'm not even sure how exaggerated it is, honestly. And I think that's part of the problem as to why so many people don't take it as a deliberate satire moment. They just take it as sleazy because it's too much of that mirror, right? It's too just what would happen. And why I say that there is an ability in the audience to read a lineup like this as satire or comedy if it's done in and over the line way is because we get an exact same shot basically in the movie Bring It On. The spiritual sequel to Showgirls, yes, I know Bring It On. So in Bring It On, we get Sparky Pulaski shows up because Kristen Dunst has hired him to come and help improve the cheer squad. And so when Sparky Pulaski's character is introduced, he shows up and then he has them all line up and he goes down the line and in a very similar manner critiques like sunlight. Have you ever heard of it? And oh, you have decent musculature. Too bad the that can't be said of your ass or whatever. Like, smile for me. No, 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 don't smile. And he's just doing the same thing in terms of this is why you are flawed as a human being and you disgust me. It's the same fucking thing down yep. to the actual shot of going down the line. People find it hilarious and bring it on and they find it really uncomfortable in Showgirls. And I find that to be a really interesting just audience reception duality. That's what happens when you hold the mirror up to reality. You must gaze into the mirror and see the ugly world for what it is. Yeah, no, I just think it's like it's a tonal sensibility that Bring It On comes across deliberately as campy, where Verhoeven comes across as very something else, right? He comes across as Verhoeven. I would say brutal, maybe. It's a brutal reality that you're being confronted with. Yeah, but I would say it's a very deliberate one. And so as we as we go on, so yes, we have this lineup happening and it's going to follow with Tony Moss saying, okay, ladies, show me your tits. Right, just very directly. I love there's a brief moment where they're kind of confused. Like, uh, oh, I have to show you my... What did you think you were auditioning for? And Come he's on. like, I'm running a topless show here, guys. Like, yeah. <laughs> this should not be a surprise. Like, fucking take off your clothes. So they do, because this makes sense, right? They're running a topless show. Of course, they once again have to strip down. And he's going to critique Elizabeth Berkeley's nipple lack of erection um, and bring out ice to sort of say, like, you gotta ice these. Well, he what asked a very sensible you? question, you know, he just, he wants to find out, and he just says, well, I'm erect, why aren't you? Yes, another really great thesis statement of the film, <laughs> like, as the person who's watching you, I'm erect, like, why are you not participating in my voyeuristic experience? It's like, well, because she is just a, you know, a human being that's being this body that's performing for you. And to make this a creepier duality, because they actually are on set and it's cold and in a big room, 
they in real life had to keep applying heat to Elizabeth Berkeley's nipples oh, so that no. she wouldn't be erect for the scene in which a male gaze would critique her for not being erect and thus having to apply ice. Super interesting. Super interesting. Also, in theater, there's this thing called the 10-foot rule when it comes to set design. It basically says that if someone in the front row cannot make out a detail like being on or off from 10 feet away, don't bother with it, you know? So it's like, don't worry if like your, the buttons on your shirt have like a little extra thread on them. Nobody can see it. And that's basically what her nipples are. No one is going to be able to tell if her nipples are erect or not during the show because there is a 10 foot rule. And also most of the time they have stuff on their nipples already, like glittery action or what have you. So the idea that this guy is concerned about her nipples not being erect, it goes into the theme, but it's also just absurd. Yes, cinema verite. I mean, we do get some pretty close up shots of her from the waist up. In the film, yes. Like in film, the 10 foot rule doesn't apply. You have to make everything pixel perfect because it's film. But this is a diegetically this is a theatrical production so anyone who's more than 10 feet away from her isn't going to know oh, I thought you what's meant going on applying heat to the, the nipples i was like yeah. well, i mean we can see him on film but <laughs> yeah why this guy is concerned in terms of doing them from far away on the stage possibly just this regulation of her body but yeah she becomes uncomfortable once again with this line that she's noticing between quote-unquote being a whore and doing whatever she's doing right now, so she's gonna storm out again. Well, we walk outside the hotel and we find out that James now works as a valet. Fuck James. He's the absolute worst. He critiques her for wanting to go for this show. And it's like, you critiqued her for working at the club, you're critiquing her for auditioning here... Fuck this guy. Yeah, and he's gonna... So he's critiquing her that the dance is subpar from the art she could be doing. So she's gonna go back to his place, and they're gonna rehearse a dance that he's been developing. And it's not that different. No, it's not. <laughs> any oh, also, of the others. just further to say fuck James, before they head out, he gets fired because he's talking to her. And as they're heading off, he says, Oh, look at that. You got me fired. James, fuck you, man. It's like a guy saying, why'd you make me yell at you? Why'd you make me do that, baby? Like, fuck you, dude. Yeah, he's the worst. And... Oh, God. But you're right. Like, when they get to his place and they begin to do this dance, it, it's nothing different than the rest of the dance that she's been doing, That's what, what he has choreographed for her. And his whole line of dancing's not fucking, well, your thesis is a little flawed here, sir, given the dance you have her doing. Yeah, she's actually going to copy some of the exact same moves that she uses on Kyle McLaughlin's character during mm. the lap dance. Yeah. So she's going to kind of like sink down in front of his knees in the same exact way. And then it will start looking like they're just going to have sex and she stops him. She's going to use the... I have my period excuse to stop him, which turns out to be true. Yeah, James is like, I'm going to call your bluff. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Really, I do. Huh. And then he's like, I have towels. And she's like, yeah, that's not really the problem, though. But it is interesting that Nomi, she uses her body in a certain kind of weaponized way that we will have heard the period excuse before. 
at the strip club why she missed work the night before instead of going to the club was like oh well i have my period do you really want me bleeding all over everything i love that i was like oh yeah yeah women have periods for one day i forgot about that yeah well, it's kind of fun because it's almost this way of just pointing out some of the more humanized forms of the female body that most of the commodification audience don't want to think about right where she's like you want me bleeding all over the place like she knew that that was possibly going to work as an excuse of oh yeah like the gross parts of your body or whatever the reaction is like oh my god actual functions of the female body ew gross no Ugh. and then later like in that same earlier scene when she at first like storms off the stage when she sees the crystals there and her boss is like get back on stage she's wiping down the sweat from her body another thing critics are always like oh my god she's got so sweaty yeah like <laughs> really, you yeah. know, like got uh, or your armpits sweat a lot when you strip. One, yes, they do. Everything sweats when you strip. And two, I love that she's like looking directly in her boss's eyes as she's just kind of like bluntly wiping off under her armpits. Kind of once again, <laughs> be like, yeah, this is the functions of a real body. Like, yeah. come at me, bro. And so there's this. She seems to understand. There's the performative nature of the body, and then there's the like these are the fluids and the the mess stuff about the body that you don't want to see but like Verhoeven's actually going to follow through and show us those things as well and Nomi's going to show us those things as well. Nomi gets back to her trailer. Molly is like, Nomi, you missed a call. You need to call them back. And Nomi is hesitant about calling back whoever may have called. Molly does it for her. Hands Nomi the phone. She's like, uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Puts, hangs the phone. I got the part! And she, she is now a part of the course of the Stardust Topless Review Show. Yes, and we're going to get this whole series of replaceability. And so since she is not willing to put up with James's shit, we're going to find out that James just takes on Penny instead as a replacement. At the same time that we're going to get Nomi going to the Stardust, and as she's being sort of shown around and shown to her spot... We actually get the dancer that was there before her. Their name is still on the mirror. And what name the is manager is going to kind of peel it off what and peel all of Drew's stuff off of the mirror. Drew? Who's Drew? I actually don't remember. It's it's supposed to be Drew Barrymore because she was part of the considerate. She was one of the women considered for the role. Oh, really? Okay. I did not know that that was yeah, like the reference. I remember reading that way back in the day. One thing from prior, when she goes to see James, there's this giant neon sign outside his door that says, Jesus is coming soon. And it's so conspicuous in the frame. I thought, okay, I feel like that's supposed to mean something, but I don't know what. Many people are coming in this movie. Jesus is not one of them. I don't know what that sign meant. And also the fact that she was pissed off at James for being with Penny. That was like the one thing I thought, no, me... Why? Why are you upset by this? You, you don't have no ties to this guy. He even says like we have, we don't have any ties, and he, that's the one thing I'm with James on. Like no, no, they don't have any ties. Why is she upset? James is gonna fuck who he wants to fuck. That's true. I think it's maybe just like the overreaching, like the just show of the bullshit nature of his character that he's been stalking her around. Like, I love you. You're my muse. And then she turns around and he's like, but you're super replaceable. And so it might just be the reminder. Yeah, he says the exact same stuff to Penny. Like, oh yeah, I wrote that song for you. I'm gonna teach you how to dance. He says the exact same shit to Nomi. So to me, there is no, you know, sincerity from James Ever. Everything we hear him say is just him trying to get laid. 
Yeah, but it's the reminder that she is as replaceable as she is. Fair enough. Like, she Thematically, doesn't really it works. like that. Um, the Jesus is coming thing, I think, is partially that that sign was probably there. And so you get a lot of Jesus-y is coming imagery all over, even in Las Vegas, especially in Las Vegas, because you have all of these counter groups for morality, right? And so it's an interesting juxtaposition of the morality subset amongst this sort of sin city. You also get it at a time where the rest of the scene, at some point when he comes and intercepts her outside of the stardust after she's gotten the job and they're having this conversation there's christmas stuff everywhere there are christmas trees out this is christmas oh nice which is kind of curious because six weeks later from halloween was when she first went to the stardust with molly to just get experience to it so apparently everything else has happened in like a couple weeks like two to three weeks. Rising fast. Rising fast, this yeah. one. So, but they do seem like they are really deliberately putting these background time markers in. So that's got to be a deliberate choice because they didn't have to say it was six weeks later after she moved in after Halloween. So, yeah, this is apparently a two to three week process. There you go. Well, Nomi, yeah, she heads over to the Stardust in her the outfit that she got from Versace, as she calls it, tells her new bosses, like, they say, look, uh, well, uh, the boss says, ah, you came in looking like Pollyanna. Now you're looking like Lolita. It's the worst line in the movie. <laughs> what, would, what, would, what would you think of the significance outside of you know, what we find out later on? What do you think the significance of calling her Pollyanna is? So I think the Pollyanna part is fine. It's the Lolita thing that doesn't quite make sense. I was like, she doesn't, though. She's she's not 12. Like, she's clearly Thank an you. Uh, adult misinterpreted young Lolita, woman. sir. <laughs> and Lolita did not dress in Versace, so it was just an ill metaphor all around. It's like, pronounced that one was Versace. A fail. That was a that was a Joe line that I can't abide. But um <laughs> I think, yeah, the setup is this, like, idea that she's still a little bit innocent in a way with the Pollyanna stuff, that she's naive. Not innocent, but naive. That's then supported by the fact that she doesn't know how to pronounce Versace. Like, she's coming from a lower class area that is trying to rise in some way. And people around her are finding that funny. They're but this, reading it uh, Yeah, this is also where Gay shows her around that, shows her the dressing room, t- shows her the stage tells her like okay you know brown rice and vegetables all the way brown rice and vegetables uh shortly after like they they're making orders for lunch and they ask nomi uh what do you want to eat and she's like uh hamburger fries and soda and gay just stops her like she'll have brown rice vegetables and a and a water and really the only thing i think in that original order Burger and fries you can actually get away with if it's done right. It's the soda you don't want to have. That's just going to bloat you. You don't want to have soda while you're doing excessive activity, like a lot of activity like this. And so once again, just like a policing of the body and what can kind of go in it. Crystal sort of understands that, nah, maybe, maybe this chick wants more than brown rice and vegetables and convinces her to come out to lunch. Yes. Another really great mirroring scene is going to happen at this lunch over their lesbian flirting, which is super great. And 
they're going to start mimicking each other's body movements once again from either side of the table. And at some point, the camera is going to weirdly violate the 180 degree rule and it's going to switch sides. It's on sides. that champagne. They pour the champagne and boom, we got to flip that scene. And so suddenly, not only are they mirroring each other, they literally switch places. It's very interesting. <laughs> really quick, I, I think most people who listen to us would know what this is, but for those of you who do not, uh, violating the 180 rule, typically in film, when you have two characters having a dialogue and the camera is cutting between the two of them, you have to frame it so that one character is looking left to right, the other is looking right to left, so you get a better sense of the geography of where they're sitting and their orientation to each other. To violate the 180 rule means that you are suddenly it's either they're not looking left or right or they're not looking the directions that they were before and this scene does that when we suddenly pour some crystal champagne that crystal says says she named herself after but i guess is just always mispronouncing her own name i don't know well it was inspired by i like that she calls it holy water she's like what is this champagne nah honey this is holy water and like flicks some champagne in nomi's face it's it's i like it's a nice she's so fucking great but yeah we're gonna have once again this really deliberate mirroring scene that these women are very similar um that they might even switch places coupled with the fact that Gina Gershon or Crystal is going to say, you and me, we're exactly alike. And Nomi's going to lose her shit at that once again. Be like, I'll never be like you. And it's like, isn't that the goal, though? Didn't you see her up on that stage as the goddess in the show? And you're like, I want that. Isn't that your life goal? Crystal says, we're all whores, honey. We give them what they want and we take their money. And I think in a movie that didn't try to play it as over the top or a satire or whatever you want to call it here, Nomi would maybe stop and say, okay, look, I understand your comments here in the nature of capitalism and selling ourselves in whatever way that may be in the commodification of ourselves. But I really just don't like that term whore. Could you stop using it for me personally? Things that would be great, but we don't get that. We just get her screaming out, I'll never be like you! I don't know if Nomi in character would be able to completely emotionally and intellectually process why she doesn't like being called a whore. Like, she like just I reacts, said, yeah, it's right? a, that, that's a different movie. That's, <laughs> it'd be a completely different movie if she was able to. And so then, yeah, we have a little showdown. They go back. It looks like they're about to kiss the. The heat is on. They're looking into each other's eyes. Getting really close there with the the dancing. Then Crystal's going to be like, see, you are a whore. And Nomi's like, fuck you. And and leaves. (laughs) Then we get the $1,000 whore setup where somebody approaches Nomi saying like, hey, if you show up at this boat show to represent the hotel, we'll give you $1,000. Yeah, this... The other thing that really bugs me about this scene is that one of the dancers, Julia, has brought her children to the dressing room. And I almost I don't have a problem with like kids being in, in like around naked women. You know what, children, they need to know. That's that's fine. It's the fact that you've brought children into this working space where everyone is running around really fast and everything needs to be in a very specific place. Kids wandering around is super dangerous for them. Like, what the hell is wrong with you? And and one of the other dancers, Annie, like yells at them, like, would you kids shut the fuck up? And this little girl who's holding a fucking teddy bear just goes, she said the F word. Like, oh, God, it's just, I mean, it's manufactured drama between Annie and Julie that's going to pay off later on. But, man, I wish they had done it a little bit 
done it a different way than like Julie bringing her kids to the back. Oh. Well, it makes sense that she would bring her kids to the backstage. Well, she's a terrible person. So yeah, that doesn't make sense. Well, no, also just that, I mean, there's a certain privilege that comes along with being able to afford and access childcare, right? And this woman may or may not have that available to her. And so it also wasn't incredibly uncommon for people to bring their kids to strip clubs and have other strippers watch them in the back room and try to keep them out of the, the front. And so surely they have happens, a room right? though for that. Surely they have like a store, a, a room for the kids set up in this place. I don't know. I mean, I doubt it, but they should. But yeah, built-in childcare within hotel showgirl situations generally yeah. is not available. And a lot of them are single mothers to a certain extent. And so, yeah, that's just kind of a reality. And so it, I found it interesting that they included the fact that like this woman has kids, right? She has a life once mm -hmm. again outside of this showgirl thing it humanizes her she's also a mother damn it Verhoeven your movie's just too real for me god now she's constrained yeah like that's what I think is like the problem with this movie in certain ways is that like it's not under the line it's not over the line it just is the line and that's really hard to know what to do with because it's that whole like Henke thing of the moment your movie stops asking questions and starts providing what you think are answers you're bordering dangerously on advertising and Verhoeven adheres to that like nobody else in a certain way where it's like he doesn't want to necessarily be dogmatic and provide answers or solutions or morality like he's very outspoken of being like an amoral asshole and that he just wants yeah that mirror no more no less so I don't know um, but yeah, I found that to just actually be a very real moment where you have some people who bring in their kids and then other people who are like why do you have your fucking kids here? This is not an environment for children. I purposely don't have children because I don't want to be around them. And then, like, <laughs> this kind of duality of, like, don't swear in front of my kids. Like, well, then don't bring them in fucking in front of me, right? Um, and, yeah, that, that war that often happens in, like, every restaurant that children are around or whatever. Anyway, yeah, yes. Maybe that's a sign of a good movie when you get into a point where you are finding yourself wanting to argue with one of the characters on one of their decisions that you want to engage with them and say, what? Why would you do this thing that really actually would happen? How dare you? So, you know what? That's how we know that Verhoeven, he is, he is the modern Orson Welles. Exactly. So then, of course, we have... The Boat Show. The, the Boat Show. Again, we'll talk about the musical later on, but there is this very quick clip I adore from the musical. I'm going to show you really quick here. We really want to go Represent the casino I just adore right. that clip because of the ridiculous name they give to the boat show. <laughs> What's the name of the boat show? The, uh, <laughs> I can never remember the whole thing, but it's something like the 40th annual uh, International Mountain Las Vegas and Surrounding Area Boat Show. <laughs> and yeah, that sounds about right. Once again, that just seems real. Somehow. That is what you would call this boat show. And I think that is like a lot of people kind of reacted to the absurdity of a boat show getting representation from a casino and this is how they do it like the musical kind of calls that like that does seem a little strange but again Paul Verhoeven and Esterhaz they did their research so this probably really does happen 
And what definitely happens is that a high roller comes in to see Nomi and her fellow dancer at the boat show after they've performed. And, you know, I think it's it gets a little... It's a little sketchy. What to, okay, so what... basically it's obvious that this has been like a setup so that they can sleep with her afterwards. Once again, Nomi not up for being called a whore. The other one's like, yeah, I knew what I was signing up for. I'm here for it. Whatever. <laughs> You're getting a thousand dollars, Nomi, for this. For this. Which actually, when we learn her going rate later, is a huge income bump. Then she's going to go complain to Kyle MacLachlan. Kyle MacLachlan's going to force this dude to apologize. And then he's going to call him back and be like, nah, bro, obviously I was just kidding. It was a ruse. She's like, oh, man, that was super attractive that Kyle MacLachlan stood up to me like that. He seems to have some power here. I should probably fuck him so that I can get a leg up in this industry. And so she goes on a date with him. They go back to his house, and he's got a pool that is lit by a bunch of neon light palm trees and a dolphin fountain. He's got the coolest pool of all time. I love this pool. I want this pool one day. I don't doubt that, actually. That makes (laughs) sense for you as a person. Now, the sex scene that is constantly ranked, it seems, on, like, the top ten worst sex scenes in cinema, once again, totally missing the point, is going to transpire thusly. She's gonna strip down, she's gonna get in the pool, Kyle McLaughlin and his cute little butt's gonna follow, and they're gonna get in the pool, he's gonna awkwardly pour champagne all over her, and you see this moment where she, like, kind of reacts, like, what the fuck? Okay, I guess this is happening. Like, like, whoa, that's a lot of champagne, expensive champagne you're pouring on me there, bro. Okay, okay, fine. What she you switches do? on the performance, right? Like, her mm. head's suddenly thrown back, and she's like, okay, I'll pretend this is sexy. And then, like, I love his little, like, claw hands that come through the waterfall water. She goes underwater. You think that she's, like, going down to go down, but she, like, swims in her water, goes to the fountain. He, like, follows her. And, yeah, like, his hands, like, go through the water fountain, like, claws at her. I'm like, okay, Paul, we might be a little on the nose with this direction. I don't know. They are going to, yeah, she's going to wrap her legs around him in this pool. And we are going to get the mirror payoff of what was set up in that room with the lap dance as she proceeds to do the exact same choreography that she did for him when she was giving him a lap dance. So once again, no guys, this is not supposed to be one of the greatest sex scenes of all time. This is her going through the motions of performativity. This is what got him off last time. She's just going to fucking do it again. She's not, you know, in it for her own enjoyment. She's not in it for the connection. She is just doing the mirrored thing. She's fucking working. This can't be for her enjoyment at all, no matter what type of motion that she's doing. Because, I mean, London, I never like admitting this, but you have a vagina, correct? Sometimes. When you do, is it a good idea for water to be thrust into your vagina that also is chlorinated? Yeah, so this is getting a little graphic. Well, we don't know if it's a chlorinated pool or a saltwater pool that he's got going on here. Either way, I don't think it's good. Saltwater is better than chlorine, but yeah, she is having unprotected sex in a potentially chlorinated pool. Yeah, and this guy could have AIDS and shit. That's true. So now James becomes, once again, the prophet coming back around. Like, this is this is not the greatest practice here for multiple reasons, but she's getting shit done. But, yeah, overall, I'm like, everybody's vagina is 
different to a certain varied degree. Some people really like pool sex, but it's not for everybody. No. It's certainly not for everybody. And yeah. Yes. Generally speaking, it's not the best. It's kind of one of those things that is you always see in movies. People are always having pool sex and people are also always having sex on the beach. And sand is another thing that's not <laughs> great when it comes to sexual interaction on well, I mean, like, men have orifices, too. And so, like, basically anybody who's, yeah, getting penetrated with sand is never a, a fun time. Uh, no, I, I don't use absolutes like that. It's yeah. not a fun time for everybody. I'm sure there's some people who really love that, like, rough grit sand sensation. I know a lot of masochists. I'm sure, it, I'm sure it's out there. The next day. Yeah. The next day after that, she does get promoted to the understudy of Crystal after kind of going through a... A semi-audition, but, you know, she kind of has that mm. shoe in. You know she's, like, in bad shape because she has a fingernail of cocaine at one point. Yeah. <laughs> she did do that, I think, a couple of times. Snort it's, cocaine out of her fingernail. I it's think great. that's the only time in the whole movie she does cocaine. Do I'm trying to see where I am in my notes. I got distracted by pool sex. <laughs> As we all do from time to time. Uh, something about, like, the adult cruel intentions vibe that Gina Gershon and Kyle McLaughlin have here <laughs> which technically is just dangerous liaisons but dangerous liaisons just, just like sucks as a narrative in a way that cruel intentions doesn't so I'm gonna go with adult cruel intentions where she's like oh you fucked her didn't you he's like are you jealous or are you mad that I beat you to the punch and I was like oh man they play these little sex games with each other they're so great <laughs> and I think the answer here is both that and yeah, fun. once again, they, they yeah. nail flirt about whose nails are better. This is one of the weird things that has always stuck out to me in this like quasi-lesbian, at least bisexual narrative with these women and their nail flirtation. If there's anything to critique about the <laughs> improbable realism of showgirls, <laughs> the one and only one thing I have noticed is the consistency with which these women flirt through their nails. I like it as a metaphor for status and power and claws and whatnot. I get it. But most women I know that have uh -huh. sex with other women do not have those nails. Once again, I'm not going to speak with absolutes, but if you are attracted to women, you keep your nails in a way that like you were not going to fuck up and puncture their vagina if you stick those in there. And so... Yeah, I see those nails, and I was like, girls, you are both really sexy. I would totally interact with both of you, but you're going to have to take those acrylics off. Like, it's just, that's a deal breaker. The old joke is, uh, what do you call a lesbian with long nails? Single. <laughs> there we go. Like, that was actually one of the ways, like, in the early days, it was, it's a stereotype, but, and it doesn't completely, you know, work across the board, but one of the first things you look at, I think they do this in the L word, too, like, one of the first things you look at to try to determine if a chick might be able to get down is like, well, what's her nail situation? <laughs> if she's got those straight girl nails, like, she's probably not planning on doing you anytime soon. Nah. Uh, we have a, there is a whole thing where Crystal confronts Nomi and says, like, did you fuck him for the auditions? And uh, Nomi just laughs, uh, kind of laughs at the hypocrisy of, of all of that because she knows damn well Crystal has fucked around for roles, too. Uh, Kyle, or... <laughs> it's first of all it's funny that we keep calling this guy Kyle McLaughlin his name in the movie is Zach Carey in the musical they just call him Kyle McLaughlin like yeah, literally well, because the name Zach K 
Kiri just like it's not memorable. Like Who it's gives not a shit? said enough. Yeah. It's just it's Kyle McLaughlin. Kyle like, McLaughlin is a way better name. But that, uh, Kyle McLaughlin comes by after this confrontation with Crystal to tell her like, yeah, you got the part. It's awesome. Crystal's mad at her. Nomi says, you shouldn't, don't get mad. You shouldn't be mad. It makes you look old. And Crystal's like, oh, bitch, you did bitch, not you say did that. you did not just go there. I'm like, <laughs> oh, shit. So, because we already knew that that was a insecurity of hers from the beginning with that reporter. Uh, we get some back and forth. Crystal is all like, yeah, you're going to have to get rid of her as my understudy or this shit's just not going to fucking fly. Yeah. But Nomi heads back to the dressing room and finds a letter that says, sorry, we can't give you this role, runs into to, to Kyle McLaughlin's office and says, like, well, what the fuck, man? You told me I had this. And he says, no, I, look, Crystal said she would leave. She threatened to get her lawyers involved. We can't, like, we can't g- cross her. Yeah, so, like, whatever. Yeah. Um, that nice... They're going to be performing this really great, yes. very 90s-seeming S&M-themed... The best show. PVC show, and it's going to get a little aggressive, and it is going to culminate with Nomi pushing Crystal down the stairs, off stage. Yeah. But she's going to hurt her hip. She's going to get a minor concussion. The other chick is going to the one that had kids is going to vouch for her that Nomi was nowhere nearby because previously as her own vengeance plot she had released some crystals onto rhinestones onto the stage so that the woman who had been complaining about her kids falls and breaks her knee and Nomi sees it and doesn't say anything and covers for her as well so it's a quid pro quo slaughter of the starlets that are in your path situation. It's true. And so Crystal has her she's hurt. She can't dance. We go to a scene where the men are talking and the men are like, what are we gonna do? What is there to do? We gotta bring someone in. Bring in Paula Abdul. Bring in Janet Jackson. I don't think that either of them would be down for a topless review show, but whatever. But what is weird to me about this scene is that they don't appear to understand how understudies work. You don't have to stop a show because your main star is hurt. You use the understudy. That's what they're there for. Now, obviously, Nomi is not officially the understudy, but she's the closest thing. And if you want to never go dark, yeah, you better bring in the damn understudy yeah, really quick. Yeah, which is the conclusion they sort of come to, is that, uh, there's no reason to pause this. Mm. We'll just take a gamble on this chick that's her understudy and put her in. I do love that line from Kyle McLaughlin. We do what we do in Vegas. We gamble. Yeah. And so they gamble, and they gamble with the initial setup mirror premise, where we are back to the original show that Nomi first saw when mm. she walked in there and she saw Crystal rise up in this lava goddess dance. Except now it's, ladies and gentlemen, the Stardust Hotel is proud to present Miss Nomi Malone. Yeah, and she rises up out of that steaming volcano with crystals in her hair, and she's looking good. It's oh a good look God. for her. Yeah. The light finds her, the camera works for her, like, she's, she's a great showgirl. It all works. She has now flipped into this position that she had wanted to aspire to in the beginning. And Kyle McLaughlin, he looks really happy for her, but Molly, Molly doesn't look as happy. I think Molly suspects something. 
Yeah, Molly's like, you pushed that bitch down the stairs. Yep. I know you did. Actually, she doesn't say bitch because Molly's an angel and she would never use that language. <laughs> but she's like, I'm very suspicious of your backstabbing <laughs> demeanor right now because I thought you were better than that, even though I picked you up outside of a casino vomiting onto my car that you had just beaten up. I thought you were a better person, but poor Molly was wrong. Nomi's not a better person. Yeah, and Molly tells her that she knows, yeah, you pushed her, and Molly heads off. She's very sad. Kyle McLaughlin is like, hey, it's party time. Andrew Carver is coming. Let's get to my place. And so they all go off to Kyle McLaughlin's place. Molly shows up and, no, like, at the saving grace, like, Nomi is super happy, like, oh my god, Molly, you're here! And we, Molly's like, look, I just got one question. Quiet moment. Where is Andrew Carver? Because I'm horny as fuck. It's like, I'm not sure I completely forgive you, but I'm here for the Andrew. As I said, I can't thread a needle due to all the excessive masturbation that I've been doing. Oh, that's right. First, <laughs> for a second, I thought you were talking about you, and I was like, that is not something I want to hear about on your end. No, we can talk I, about my vagina on this, but we're keeping your genitals out. No, I've never had a problem threading a needle that. no matter how hard I do it, so no, I, no I'm I fine. I believe that. You know what's not great? The next scene. Yeah, she meets Andrew. She is going to meet her idol, and he is going to pretty much just gang rape her with his little bodyguard entourage buddies and it is a very graphic and violent scene in it's just very base brutality yeah in a way that also does feel strangely like Verhoeven but inverted because we're used to a lot of violence from Verhoeven we're not necessarily used to sexual violence from Verhoeven so this is sort of a strange meld of his egregious violence with his egregious sort of sex in his cinema this is also the scene that that Esterhaus is later going to try to distance himself from a little bit and say in interviews, yeah, I, we shouldn't have had that in there. I disagree with that to a certain extent that he should necessarily distance himself from this decision. Maybe depicted in a different way is yeah. up for debate, but the rape itself is... Once again, if you're taking this movie seriously as a satire, is where, or not even a satire, a social critique, really, is where all of this has been leading to, because we have been seeing this very casual participation in commodification, entitlement, and sort of rape culture. We've seen men that have just dismissed female agency again and again. We've had men who are like, strip for me, because this is a topless show, and ice your tits and you're gonna have to sell it eventually like all of this stuff where everybody around in this narrative and in the audience have been complicit up until this moment of what is just a creeping sense of escalation of sexual commodification and violence and dehumanization and we get the pinnacle of that right here is that we get this horrific rape scene saying, yeah, there's gradations. At some point, whatever line you feel like we've crossed into non-consensual territory, most people definitely see the non-con here, but we actually probably could draw that line way sooner. Yeah, I think that 
I've seen a lot of commentary on this from people who love this movie. And in the documentary, You Don't Know Me, they talk about how when people were beginning to show this film, you know, midnight screenings and when drag performers were beginning to act along with the movie, they would very deliberately stop the film and say, okay, so a rape scene happens here. We're skipping that shit. You're welcome. Moving past because even the people who love this movie just did not want to have to see that because it is very brutal. Your point is very accurate though, that this is where this, this is where it's been escalating to. I think you can, the argument can very much be made that there had to be a better way of doing this. Now, what is the better way of depicting rape? Like, I don't know. I don't think I don't know if there's a better way of doing it in terms of Molly gets raped by mm. her idol. Like, I think that's actually a very strong on point statement of this conclusion, ultimate conclusion to this narrative world of glamour, that everything has this shiny veneer over it and below its surface is just this hot mess of violence and brutality and capital commodification. And so I do, like is a weird word to use here, but I respect and understand that decision to use that as the pinnacle point especially since it's a character that has done nothing wrong and she ends up once again a victim of the system in a way that the people who have been more actively participating in this world have sort of eschewed a little bit, right? They've kind of commodified their own bodies to sort of circumvent a little bit and make the uncomfortable nature of the non-con or the dubious consent that's happening in this world a little bit more gray. But Molly has never invited any sort of aspect of that commodification into her life. And so to see that happen so blatantly to her character is the most shocking character it could happen to. And in that way, it is effective. It's it's just that because it has that Verhoeven tinge of just brutal nihilistic violence, it becomes a hard scene to watch in the way that it's filmed. Yeah, I think that was what I would say is the only change that I think you, you could make changes to that and still keep the spirit of what you're going for there, but either show it off screen, show it like a little out of frame, what have you. The fact that the camera is like just so on the action is so jarring and so violent. It's, it just, I think for a lot of people, it takes them completely out of it and loses any traction they may have had. Maybe for the better, or maybe, you know, you are just truly meant to be shocked. It's cinema of cruelty here, so, you know, you are really being hit hard with a very horrific thing. But I think that this movie, it could have still maintained that, that spirit and just film this in a slightly different way. Maybe we don't even see the actual act happening. We just see the door closing, cut to... Nomi and Cal McLaughlin dancing, having a good time. Nomi looks over and Molly walks out bloody and it's very and it would be still be very clear what happened to her without having to give us that graphic scene. On the flip side, one of the things where it might be essential to have it is that of course, once again, no absolutes here there are certainly individuals that will find something sexual about the rape scene if that's what they're into. But for the most part, for the majority of audience goers, it's really hard to 
find any titillation in that scene. And so in a way, it almost becomes important if this is going to be taken as a serious social criticism to have that moment as the audience where you're just sort of punched in the face with the fact of, wait, this is the movie I'm watching. This is the movie I've been watching. And it creeps up on you. And then all of a sudden it really crosses that line and shows you like, this is the culture that we've been exploring. And you've sort of just let it happen or sort of just seen it as this face value thing. But no, this is the world that we're, we're watching unfold right now. And so you might almost need the audience to participate in that in order to understand it. However, since the fallout of the film was so few people took it seriously, I think there are a lot of people who don't necessarily know what to do with the rape scene because it seems to be so out of place of what they take to be a hilarious camp fest, right? So yeah, if you're making a hilarious comedy, that rape scene doesn't fit in there. But if you're making a social criticism out of the commodification of sex and violence, that's the ultimate logical conclusion of its apex. So, and that's the film I think they were making, so it makes sense that it's in there. I don't know. The documentary You Don't Know Me does go to detail about that book, uh, like Showgirls Art of the Film, or whatever that came out around the same time as this movie, with the text of it uh, was written by Paul Verhoeven himself, and they say that gives you a real window into what his intentions with this movie were, because this book that came out as a tie-in with the film, it seems like everything he said in this movie was a sincere statement so oh yeah yeah. i actually have not seen any of verhoven's interviews that have him admitting or backtracking in any way that this was meant to be campy and fun i've seen him talk about how he was trying to bring in some ways a certain levity throughout to a very dark subject matter. And I've also seen him talk about how ultimately it's been semi-nice to see this resurrection of the film in a camp way, that it wasn't the way he intended, but it feels like a resurrection after the crucifixion, I think is one of his direct quotes, that after people just seeing no value in it for so long that he's glad that somebody's getting some value but I've never seen him backtrack in the way that Esther Haas has kind of gone back and forth it's kind of hard to see where he lands <laughs> he said stuff prior to the production and prior to the release and then he backtracked on some stuff and now he says some different stuff so he's been a little bit all over the place but Verhoeven has always taken this movie seriously and he seems to still continue to well, very good I know that Cal uh, McLaughlin has said in some interviews He obviously had some mixed feelings when he saw the film himself, but he did state, like, we were all told to take this very seriously. So if anyone ever tells you that this was meant to be a campy movie, they're lying. This was 100% a pure drama the whole way through. Yeah, in a Verhoeven way. In the way that, like, once again, like, there are some things that can be taken comedically about it because of some of the egregious stuff in the way that... There's something that's hilarious about Starship Troopers, even though the message is horrifying. And then the RoboCop, the message is horrifying, but there's something that's really great and fun about it. So like, yeah, Verhoeven walks that weird line. It's weird with them, but we'll get into that in a bit. Okay, so let's just like finish this. Well, anyway, uh, that happened. I'm glad we're done talking about that. We're now in the hospital, and this is where we get some some revelations. Uh, Well, one, Molly, she's in shock, horrible injuries. And Nomi is wondering, like, well, where the fuck are the cops? Where are the cops that are going to take this guy down? Cal McLaughlin comes in and is like, well, the cops aren't coming here, Polly Ann. 
Dun, dun, dun. She was Pollyanna all along. Yes, turns out Nomi is not a real name. Her real name is Polly Ann something or other from, I forget where, but she is, her father killed her mother and then killed himself. Nomi's been on the run, in and out of foster homes, turning tricks, doing drugs her whole teenage life. So the reveal is she actually was a whore all along, but... So she did have a rough life, a rough background. She does have sex work in her past. And so her self-defensiveness every time it came up was an attempt to distance herself from a life that she thought she had escaped from, gotten away from, only to find that once again, like that thin line between dick teasing and dancing, there's a weird ambiguous line as to what actually counts as a form of prostitution. If you're using your body as a commodity. Like, where do we draw the line with that? And so that becomes this kind of ultimate question. Kyle McLaughlin asks, so what did you use to charge? She said, yeah, it varied between 50 and 100. His response was, you have no self-esteem, baby. You're a fantastic fuck. Like, you only charge those prices? And so she spits on him. This is his, like, sleaziest, scummiest scene. I mean, he even goes so far as, like, you know, she says, I'm not a whore. No, you're a superstar. You're going to make a lot of money for this hotel. You're going to be a, a big star, kid. We learned that there's going to be no recompense for the rock star because he brings in a lot of money for the Starduster, has the potential to. He's going to be an investor. He's going to be a performer. And so once again, we get that callback to, hey, if they come on you, it's okay as long as they have a big enough tip to offer afterwards. This is the, hey, they can do whatever they want within this world, sexually speaking, as long as they can pay for it. And this guy can pay for it. So the people who are getting hurt and come on in the process become, yeah, disposable elements of the story. And Nomi doesn't necessarily like this idea, and so she's going to go on a vengeance quest to dress up all super showgirl-style luring and go to the rock star's apartment and then just beat the shit out of him. <laughs> she, uh undresses famously her nipples are red a lot of people are like why are her nipples red because you're looking at the nipples you weren't looking at the switchblade that she you know gets out to almost slice this guy's head off with yeah she puts lipstick on her nipples to, to match the shade on her lips it is yeah it's a visual distraction yeah completely beats yeah, andrew carver down probably stomps his groin to pieces you know smashes his face walks out the, you know tells the guards like he wants to sleep for a little while oh okay yeah that's cool Heads off, goes back to the hospital, and you know talks to Mo like whispers Molly like Molly, I took care of him, girl. I love you. Yeah, and then she's going to proceed to hitchhike again, because we see there's a sign where she is 280 right. miles outside of Los Angeles. She doesn't visit anyone else in the hospital after Molly. Oh yeah, I guess she does. <laughs> Gina Gershon. How did you almost forget about this scene? My God. She goes to Gina Gershon's room, Crystal's, who's all set up in her hospital bed with a ton of flowers. That's how she do. And Crystal just says, hey, I know you shoved me. I don't care. <laughs> That's what you do. That's how this business is, girl. I need a rest anyway, and my lawyers got me a great settlement. Really good lawyers. That was swift legal justice there. Yeah, I mean, she probably has some sort of, like, workers' comp insurance, but... Mm. She did kind of point out, like, how do you think I got the position? Yeah. 
initially, so implying that she once upon a time pushed a bitch down the stairs. And this is actually the hierarchy of a Star is Born narrative. <laughs> it's just that it is a world in which people are just getting promoted through crazy means of ascent. What is it like? How long am I going to be in this position? Until you die and we, or we find someone else better? Yeah, so somebody else... Well, we also just... We get the hint that the chick that already threw some rhinestones down to wipe out one of her competition comes up to Nomi at some point and it's like, hey, do you think I can be your understudy? And it's like, well, how do you say no to that? Because you right now are my alibi for not pushing Crystal down the stairs. So sure, I can look into that. But she also gets the sense that this chick is just breathing down her neck now, <laughs> has no problem possibly pushing her down the stairs in the very near future if she becomes her understudies. So Nomi's time is limited and she kind of gets that. Her and Crystal share a really strange kiss where Nomi kind of does like fish lips over Crystal's lips. It's an odd thing, but who am I to critique, you know, how you kiss Gina Gershon? Yeah, they finally kiss and then Nomi is like, I'm, I'm out. Yep. And heads out, uh, is walking outside of Vegas, starts hitchhiking. And is this a, what did you say? This is a mirror moment, what we're about to see here? To the very first shot. So we get... <laughs> the sign that Los Angeles is 280 miles away. That same blue truck, that same dude is going to come and pick her up. She's going to be in a hat and sunglasses. So at first he doesn't recognize her because this dude probably picks up a lot of women. Yeah. And then when she gets in there, she's like, bitch, I want my suitcase back. Pulls that switchblade on him. And so we find that this movie has actually been an inverted mirror of itself. It's going to start dart in this blue car, hitchhiking her way towards fame. It's going to have her see a dance. And then it's this like weird palindrome. It kind of like meets an apex and then it kind of reflects back on itself where she takes this position of the dance she initially saw and then she's going to hitchhike again. So we can actually fold this movie on top of itself and that's really cool and interesting. As she drives off to Los Angeles, there was initially going to be a showgirls sequel that's not the one that you're going to talk about. Esther Huss and Verhoeven had it planned, and it was going to take place with Nomi now trying to take on L.A., entitled Bimbos. They had part of the script written and everything, but because this film critically did the way that it did, that was unfortunately canceled, but the parody was going to live on, now just this time switched to the culture of L.A. to socially critique something else in that but yeah Nomi's not done she's still on her journey she's still out there and I th think it could still be done Elizabeth Berkeley is definitely game for it yeah I'm glad she's come back around to embrace the showgirls once there more. was a beautiful clip I found of her introducing the film I think it was like the Hollywood Bowl or like there was this huge like screen of the film in front of 4,000 people and she appeared as, as a surprise guest uh, to basically say, like, I'm just so happy to see all of you here. I've never been able to present this film to so many people who all love it. You know, there were some people who loved it back in the day, but, you know, most people hated this film. To see so many people really enjoying the film, that's great. And before she left, she, uh, like, did the hand thing that she does earlier in the movie for everyone, and the crowd goes wild. Also, Elizabeth Berkley, uh, she looks better now than she did in 1995, I think. That woman aged like the f finest of yeah. wines out there. 
she's she's still an attractive woman. She's always been an attractive woman. Her body in Showgirls is incredible. Her athleticism is incredible. Randomly married the son of Ralph Lauren. As you do. Enough. You know. So got that she's been in some money. stuff. But the really sad thing is directly after this film and the criticism and the reviews came out she was dropped by her agent yeah. and she couldn't find another one. And so this disrupted Berkeley's career in a way that it didn't disrupt quite anybody else's to that extent. She sort of became the human dumpster really for the criticism of this film. Once again, completely unfair. She's doing the performance that the director coaxed out of her and demanded. I think I mentioned to you that I did find an interview with Verhoeven where he talked about or Charlize Theron's screen test for Showgirls. She did audition for Elizabeth Berkeley's role mm -hmm. and at the time was not well known enough to be cast. Then he further commented that it's probably good that she did not get this role or else her career probably would have gone the same way as Elizabeth Berkley's because that was the style that he wanted out of Berkeley and her performance. He sticks by that. He coaxed that out of her. So Charlize Theron would have done the same thing if yeah. he had put her in the film instead. So Yeah, to me, that's the saddest thing about all of this is how much Elizabeth Berkeley had to suffer when she wasn't the one to blame for all the problems that people had with this movie but she was the figurehead the one doing all of this and I think America just hates sexy women in a, in a crazy way so like well you have to suffer now no more of you well, people also really critiqued her performance in this film as being over the top and not on point that she didn't seem to know what she was doing I had been reading a bunch of reviews and had this performance of hers exaggerated in my mind. So when I went back and watched the film again, I don't know if it was because I had this backdrop of expectation of like, okay, she's going to be crazy egregious. But when I went in thinking that, she actually wasn't as bad as I remembered her being no. in this film when I rewatched it a couple years later. She, she fits within the tone of the film, actually. She doesn't particularly stand out outside of anybody else. Absolutely. Like, one of the reviews that, like, the review that is most amusing to me is actually Roger Ebert's review of this film. And if mm -hmm. you go to Rotten Tomatoes, his review is among the the negative ones. But you and like they often take this tagline from him: uh, "This is a perfectly good waste of an NC-17 rating." Like that's the line they take from his review to like sum up like what he had to say about the film. But if you read it, he enjoys the film. Like he says, like this is crazy, but I really enjoy it. This movie is never boring, and he even True. says, like Elizabeth Berkeley gives a great energetic performance, and he calls her a, a fantastic newcomer actress. Yeah, I didn't know that he praised her performance. That's pretty great. I was like, Ebert's reviews so wonderful, but <laughs> yeah, for her to become. Yeah, the human dumpster of this film. Really, in a strange way, and this is actually Naaman's point from It Doesn't Suck, really sort of is just this pinnacle commentary overall on how right Verhoeven's social critique <laughs> of the sexual commodification world was, because we have him taking on this young girl who is well-known enough to be compared to her previous roles, and to be sensational that this teen television chick was going to 
be naked or whatever. He's using her naked body to sort of sell tickets and comment on sexual exploitation. And she's the one to take the fallout for it. Verhoeven was right. This is what happens. But it's unfortunate. Yeah. So yeah, the, the duality of the real life to this film just constantly fascinates me. And Ebert's right. There's not a dull moment in this movie. Oh, absolutely not. You're never, that really does seem to be his like big thing. Uh, you know, looking back on his reviews, like, and if a movie was boring, he says like, that's the greatest sin a movie can, can commit mm-hmm. is just to be boring, not dull or slow. You know, there are ways to do that correctly and not be boring. But when you're just losing your audience, he's like, that's the worst. I think it's actually said something very similar on one of these, the past episodes, which is like, oh, it's the worst thing you can do. It's just having a movie that's boring. So I agree with Ebert on that. Now, this film also we're going to talk about its contextual surroundings because this film did not happen in a vacuum. It came out at a very particular time after a very particular set of circumstances, which really begins with basic instinct. As all things do. As many things do. Verhoeven and Esterhaus had worked together previously, a year or two before, on Basic Instinct. Same sort of situation, Esterhaus writing the screenplay, Verhoeven directing. They hated each other on that film. They did not get along at all for one second. Um, this is not other people's accounts. This is Verhoeven's account. As well as Esterhaus, they have talked openly on how they did not get along on that film. If I may say, there's a bit from Joe Esterhaus's book, The Devil's Guide to Hollywood, where he says, uh, he says, the director, Paul Verhoeven, once said to me, I am the director, yeah? You are the writer. You will do what I tell you. And I said back to Paul, if you use that tone with me again, I'm going to come across this fucking table at you. Yeah, and then later Verhoeven's like, well, we were able to reconcile because Esterhaus <laughs> apologized and admitted I was right. So that was barely what Verhoeven needed to carry on their relationship. And they had made so much money off of Basic Instinct. Basic Instinct received so much critical acclaim in its type of genre that they were kind of given carte blanche to do whatever they wanted to do on their next project. And both of them will also admit a little bit of hubris probably went into this idea of we can do whatever we want, people think we're brilliant, people think we're great, and they're gonna get what we're doing, and we wanna do an MGM musical homage about sexual exploitation in Las Vegas. They that were, was the pitch. And they were seeking out this NC-17 rating. I've heard Verhoeven say that before. Like, that was his goal, was to make a movie that had to be rated NC-17. Well, not so much his goal as it was an inevitability. And so he took a pre-pay cut knowing... So that was the deal he struck with the studios was... I think it was a 70% cut on his salary so that he could make this NC-17. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that he had been through that so thoroughly with RoboCop having to edit and resubmit and edit and resubmit so that RoboCop could have an R rating. And he did not want to have to go through that process again. He's like, there's going to be nudity all over this thing. I don't want to deal with it. Like, we're going for NC-17. Very true. Though he would, in an odd way, have to re-edit the film a little bit when it was released on video cassette because they wanted a version they could sell at Blockbuster or rent at Blockbuster. So he did create an R-rated cut of the film, just trimming the more intense moments of sex and I believe the uh, scene of assault and what have you. 
Uh, he definitely had nothing to do with the version of this film that played on on VH1, if you're familiar with... Oh, uh, the black bikini... The cartoon bikini version. <laughs> pixelated. Yeah. Super awkward. Not only that, but they also had... Uh, Elizabeth, depending on like which story you're reading, they either didn't bother to bring back Elizabeth Berkeley or refused to pay her fee of $250 to redub her lines for TV. So anytime that she's like that we have a, a TV version of a line. It's an actress that sounds nothing like Elizabeth Berkeley. Yikes. Yeah, I haven't seen that version. I've just heard tale of it. Yeah, so. he's uh, he's credited as Jan Jensen for that movie. It's basically like an Alan Smithy kind of name. Yeah, so this kind of like distancing. And yeah, that goes into the auteurship theory here in a wee bit. I don't know if we want to hold on to talking about the auteurship here to talk about one of the things you want to talk about. What was it, like the sequel that you wanted to talk about? All right, well, yeah, a few things, like the the pins I just had, like we've kind of covered them a lot already. Like I want to talk about how James is the worst. We've covered that. Uh, uh-huh. You know, the nature of the scene of assault, we've covered that already. Uh, the other thing I'll just do really quickly for fun is a theory I came up with for Kyle McLaughlin's character while I was watching the movie, and I went online. I, I am not the first one to think this. Mm-hmm. The theory is that this character is actually Mr. C from Twin Peaks The Return. Interesting. Okay, expand on this okay. theory. Okay, so for those of you who aren't familiar with Twin Peaks, murder mystery show when the bat in the early 90s starred Kyle MacLachlan, our boy here. At the end of the original run, Kyle MacLachlan is trapped in an alternate dimension, and in the real world, he is replaced by an evil doppelganger. In Twin Peaks The Return, that came out in 2017, we see that character again, Mr. C. He's the evil version of Kyle MacLachlan's main character, and he has created a topla, or a doppelganger of himself that's going to get sucked back into the alternate dimension that he knows is like that's going to happen to one of them so he's created this doppelganger the doppelganger lives in las vegas and there's no record of him prior to 1996 so the theory is (laughs) that this character in the movie played by kyle mclaughlin is actually mr c while he's still trying to figure out the nature of human vice and before he's like well he's still kind of concerned with appearances and then a little after this he's just like yeah fuck it i'm gonna grow my hair long i'm gonna drive around in shitty automobiles i don't care humans are shit anyway all right, no, I, that all makes sense. The science works out. So, yeah, and he's just such a sleazy motherfucker in this movie. You're like, yeah, I could see this guy being like an evil alien from an alternate dimension. Yeah, that Okay, yeah, that tracks. It makes it a little bit more fun. In reality, there are guys just as sleazy like that, and, you know, they're regular humans. You don't need that fantasy to justify it. As I say, he's kind of low-key sleazy. Like, he is not the sleaziest character I've ever seen in cinema. He's just... Mr. C, he was getting his footing still. You know, he was, like, kind of figuring things out. He's he's just into what's happening around him and knows how to to work the room. But, yeah, other than that... There you go. But, as you said, the ending of this movie seemed to be teasing as a sequel. That sequel did not happen. What if I were to tell you that in order to watch the sequel to this film, you might have to watch three separate movies? I would believe it. Okay. Good. So, in 2009, a German director by the name of Mark Vorlander uh, said that he was putting together a sequel to Showgirls. They was going to call Showgirls Exposed, and that he was going to have Rena Riffle to star in it. This apparently was news to Rena Riffle. She was, like, not down to star in a sequel uh, with this guy. And he called her out, said, like, oh, you're a lying asshole, blah, 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 blah. She had no involvement with it. 
he apparently could not get permission from MGM or anyone to make this sequel, despite the fact that he had apparently, reportedly, $20 million book put into this thing. I could not find this movie online to save my life. From what I can tell, it is 60 minutes long. It is the story of a showgirl in Vegas who dies from a bad batch of cocaine, and her brother is out for revenge on whoever was responsible. Um, the trailer itself describes the film as a 60-minute photo play. I don't know what the hell that is, but suffice to say, like everyone has called this thing a complete piece of trash that has seen it. Like It's not good, bad, it's not bad, good, it's just shit. So I, I'm still kind of interested to see it, but I don't know. So the official sequel to this thing was made by Rena Riffle. Uh, who played Penny slash Hope, whatever, in uh, Showgirls, called Showgirls 2, Pennies from Heaven, that bills itself as both a spoof and remake of Showgirls, and it's barely either of those things. What you have to understand is that this movie was made for like $7,000. It was a very, very inexpensive movie, and it's, you can't really be mad at it because... It's obvious this was something like a passion project for Rin Riffle. She was just doing it for fun most of the time. The most entertaining thing that I found related to Showgirls that was created after the fact was Showgirls the Musical. And when I began to learn about this, I was expecting one to be like amused and entertained. I was not expecting to be inspired. <laughs> and here's why. Uh, the... The, this is uh, Showgirls, the musical, the unauthorized parody. So it's like, you know, a fan effort. But the woman who plays the Nomi part is named April Kidwell. And she had a story kind of, well, no, not similar, I won't say that. But she herself was a survivor of sexual assault and went into depression for many years when she lived in New York. Then one day her boyfriend told her, hey, they're having auditions for this thing, Bayside the Musical. Wait, Bayside the musical as in Saved by the Bell or just Yes, Saved by the okay. Bell. She goes in and she gets the Jesse part. All right. So, she's already like played a Elizabeth Berkeley character in a musical parody and then they do Showgirls the musical and she plays Nomi and the musical really leans into uh, how ridiculous a lot of the plot can be if you're not reading it as a dramatic critique of you know the entertainment industry or of like you know the Vegas of the world of Vegas uh, calls out you know James's hypocrisy with say like yeah dancing ain't fucking like there's a whole thing where he's like dancing's not fucking now yeah put your head in my crotch that's good dancing is not fucking okay great grab a dick yeah dancing is definitely not fucking shake your ass again let me stress dancing is not fucking. So a lot has come from this movie. Uh, a lot of creativity has been spawned by this movie in wonderful and sometimes not so wonderful ways, but it's still there. And the documentary, You Don't Know Me, I think the most beautiful thing it has to say about that is we are still talking about Showgirls because we're not done with Showgirls yet, and Showgirls is not done with us. It still has something to say, and there's no correct answer for a lot of people on thing good, thing bad. There isn't really a correct answer on that, and that probably is a sign of something very powerful to us. Yes, so critique or not a critique, that is is one of the questions that obviously I've been throwing stuff in throughout in terms of why I think it's clearly a very deliberate setup mirrored system of social critique. 
some of the other things that do go into this from modern critics that kind of talk about it is some of the ways in which this does or doesn't fit in with Verhoeven's other stuff. And to get into that, we'll throw down really quickly that there's, of course, Truffaut's and then Andrew Saris is going to be the American scholar that takes Truffaut's auteur theory and kind of mainstreams it to an American audience. So whoever you want to credit with auteur theory, we have auteur theory. <laughs> and that's this idea, of course, that a director will create a constellation of themes in their work that we can kind of see when we look at their overall body. Not all directors do this. Some of them do this. And Verhoeven definitely does this. So if we look at all of his other stuff, they are heavily satirical, heavily critical, but also kind of do it Harmony Corinne's doing with Spring Breakers a little bit and both critiquing but also embracing a topic simultaneously. That's again the way that Robocop is criticizing and commenting on the hyper-aggressive violence that happens in the action film. It is still a hyper-aggressive action film. Showgirls is going to be like that in that it is critiquing sexual commodification, but it's also utilizing sexual commodification. And that is very, very curious. And it's curious as to why people are able to do that with his violence and his sci-fi and not with his sex in terms of the, the themes that he draws from. And one of the theories in that is just American audiences are better at reading criticism in violence or seeing egregious violence where they're not with sex basic instinct does this a little bit too right it is a interesting look metatextually at the hitchcockian type of noir thriller it's a comment on it and people have a harder time seeing those pieces for some reason in basic instinct um to a certain extent just because that's a little bit more esther haas's work in that one than verhoeven's like it feels more like an esther haas thing but the meta is there and so, yeah, sex just doesn't seem to work for the American Verhoeven audiences. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I if you want to add to that discussion. Try to find a... Let's see, where, the, where is it? I guess while you're looking for stuff, some of the quotes that I found about the work. Verhoeven, as he saw it, that Showgirls was about looking the beast in the mouth and expressing in that same maximalist way as everything else, the decadence, corruption, and capitalist exploitation of the female body. And so that's how Verhoeven saw it. So he seems to be quite, yeah, on point with that. I was just looking through uh, Joe Osterhaus's book, uh, trying to find something interesting he had said about that, about the movie. And honestly, he does it. it his book is very strange. It's, uh, yeah, it, it's a book. But at one point... <laughs> He is talking about, uh, there's a chapter called Ideas Are Poison, and basically it's covering how Hollywood and you know, mainstream America do not like new ideas or new concepts. And he says, Showgirls, my film, was the greatest commercial and cinematic disaster since Heaven's Gate and Ishtar. It failed because of liberal political correctiveness and conservative fundamentalism and because it was a bad movie. I deserve the credit for it. I almost single-handedly killed off the sexual content in America. 
Violence is still fine, though. The bloodier and more sexless, witness Tarantino, the better. So that is there is a he makes a good point there that we are definitely good with violence. It's just sex freaks the hell out of American audiences still. And the Tarantino comparison is interesting because Tarantino is in the camp, as far as I understand from what I've seen, um, his responses on Showgirls. He's in the camp of this movie's good. Yeah. And here is why. Also, Tarantino is doing a lot in his films what Verhoeven is doing in Showgirls. Tarantino gets praised for his stuff in terms of how his narratives of sex and vengeance, because he also is going to have some sexually fueled revenge narratives, Kill Bill coming to mind. And people tend to like to contextualize that as, oh, look at how he's paying homage to exploitation cinema, to the rape revenge fantasy. Uh, there's actually a really great quote by Naaman, um on this. Tarantino routinely gets praised for his film's connections with the history of exploitation cinema, with critics clamoring to place Kill Bill in conversation with the collected works of Bo and Vinebius, or to note Death Proof's debt to Vanishing Point or Faster Pussycat, Kill, Kill, Kill. Despite being released only a year after Pulp Fiction, Showgirls was dismissed as if it had been written and directed in a vacuum. There was no thought spared for the possibility that Verhoeven and Esterhaus were similarly integrating Grindhouse or rape revenge cinema tropes into their topless MGM musical. And that's an interesting and excellent point that why would showgirls not be understood in a contextual history of these sort of gazpacho westerns and the rape revenge fantasies and the exploitation, especially considering that that seems to be what they're drawing the heaviest from, as well as this MGM musical idea, because that's something that is thrown around a lot. They wanted to make an homage, critique, whatever, of an MGM musical. They wanted to make an MGM musical. And a lot of people are confused by that because this is not a musical. Right? Nobody breaks out <laughs> into song at any point in time. And yet what they're actually drawing from here on the musical subset is we're going to get another Berkeley into the discussion with, I never knew how to pronounce his first name, Busby, B-U-S-B-Y, B- yeah. Busby Berkeley. And so Busby Berkeley instead of Elizabeth Berkeley is going to bring us what we call the Berkeley aesthetic. And he was a guy who was a great musical choreographer beginning in the Depression era of musicals, um, or Depression era, the musicals that came out during the Depression era. And he is known for his, what is quote unquote, disguising sex in geometry, which is a great idea, this disguising sex in geometry. He would create these kaleidoscope forms of the female body in choreographed positions and that is heavily what Verhoeven was trying to replicate with the choreography of the Stardust is this idea of kind of diminishing the purely sexual aspect by trying to create these kind of geometric patterns and whatnot and then actually asking is this any better or worse on a commodification level like we're still titillating we're still creating new forms of beauty or worse or better right i mean there's there's once again that duality he's not necessarily saying exploitation is bad just that it is so I think that's another thing with Verhoeven is 
I keep saying like it's a social critique, but it's a social critique in a way that's ambiguous in the amoral Verhoeven way, because he's not trying to tell us it's a bad thing that this exploitation exists in cinema, in media, in American culture, just that it does. And yeah, a lot of people don't necessarily know what to do with that. And yeah, yeah, the Berkeley aesthetic is very heavy in this, and I think that's what they mean when they say their own MGM musical. So apparently when Verhoeven thinks musicals, he doesn't actually think of the songs, he thinks of the choreography. And that's kind of a cool way to think of musicals. Right on. So, yeah, but the duality, I'll sort of end with my favorite quote that I found on his stuff from Verhoeven himself when he's talking about the weird way that he does movies that somehow exist in both spaces. Um, for audiences that can interpret it one way or the other. And he's like, I mean, the main narrative of Starship Troopers are young kids fighting giant bugs. But underneath, there's this other layer that says, by the way, these kids live in a fascist utopia, which is the best description of Starship Troopers. It's like, yeah, people can go and just watch kids fight giant bugs. But the undercurrent of the message of the entire film is, but they're also doing it while living in a fascist utopia. And so what is our equivalent then, auteur-wise, if we're willing to extend that Verhoeven puts this kind of dual thought into all his works, what is it in Showgirls? And it becomes, these Showgirls are, you know, women are taking off their tops and getting naked, but they're also doing it while living in a dark underbelly of commodification and sexual capitalist exploitation. That's just, that's Verhoeven's way. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how people miss that. But they do. They do. <laughs> they were just expecting to see something exciting and titillating, but to have to have some commentary underneath that, oh, that's, that's a bit too much thought, you know? I don't even know if we have time for our top five. Um, Paul V, Kyle M, the cinematographer, Gina, and Elizabeth. All right. Yours? Yeah, Molly comes in at five for me. Kyle okay. McLaughlin, he's bringing his Kyle McLaughlin charm. Okay. Gina Grishan, uh -huh. fucking hot. Elizabeth Berkley, girl, you, you took the, she the dive better. for this film. You didn't deserve it. And uh, yeah, number one, Paul Verhoeven. Like, this right. feels like a Verhoeven film to me. It does, and I fucking love him. All right. Uh, well. <laughs> we should probably contextualize the caffeine part as to why that's our safe word, because I don't think we brought up the fact that... Of course, Elizabeth Berkeley is known first and foremost for her Save by the Bell past and her great, great acting well, on Save by the Bell. Tonight, on a very special episode of Save by the Bell, Elizabeth Berkeley, or uh, Jesse Spano, I believe that was her character yeah. in Save by the Bell, she was cramming for a test but also had to perform somewhere or sing. So the only way to do all of that was to take pills they're caffeine pills oh caffeine pills okay yeah. yeah the the clip i found of uh, the whole scene is that comes in and he sees her taking them and he just says jesse pills you are taking drugs yeah no they're they're caffeine pills cuz she needs to stay up to to study for that test and it has gotten her cracked out and so we see the glimpse of what could be in her showgirl's future of this addiction so if in a way, there's also the theory that Showgirls is the alternate dark timeline in which Jesse Spano never got off those caffeine pills, and then she turned to coke, and then she turned to crack, and then we get Showgirls as a narrative, and that 
Yeah. Well, thank she's, God, the, thank God the rules spaz. of the safe word are our own because we've said the safe word like five times now describing this scene. That's true. Yeah, we, we failed on that one, but, you know, whatever. Okay, so... <laughs> Yes, she has this freak out, and then she sings a song, and it's great. And that's, that's important context. We can leave for... you with that while we see Jesse Spano as portrayed by Elizabeth Berkeley. And we have been talking for a really long time, so I do think I need to go and get, get. some caffeine. Tonight? Come on. Wait, what am I going to wear? Jesse, remember? Lisa's bringing your costume. Right, I gotta wash my hair. No, there's no time. No time! There's never any time! I don't have time to study! I'll never get into Stanford! I'll let everyone down! I'm so confused! Jesse, hey! Hey, just calm down. It's okay. You're right. It's okay. Everything will be okay. Yeah. I just need one of these. Pills! You mean you really are taking drugs? I need them. Jesse, give me those. I need them back! I have to sing! Jesse! You can't sing tonight! Yes, I can! I'm Jesse, Jesse. Come on. Relax. Come on. Let's shower, okay? <laughs> tonight, tonight, we're gonna make it happen. Tonight, we'll put all of our things aside. Oh, Give him this time and show me some affection. We're going for the pleasures in the night. See? I I'm Tony Moss. I produce this show. Some of you probably heard that I'm a prick. I am a prick. I got one interest here, and that's the show. I don't care whether you live or die. I want to see you dance, and I want to see you smile. I can't use you if you can't smile. I can't use you if you can't show. I can't use you if you can't sell. Let me take a look at you. Spread out. Let's get excited. Thanks. It's a Versace. It's Versace. <laughs> what? Versace. It's pronounced Versace. Oh. You don't want to piss me off, darling, now that we're friends. No. You shouldn't get pissed off. It makes you look older. Self-esteem, baby. You're a fantastic fuck. Oh, I was paying you a compliment. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I want to. 
You have great tits. They're really beautiful. Thank you. I like nice tits. <laughs> I always have. How about you? I like having nice tits. Not a whore. No. You're enough. You're gonna be a big star. <laughs> If you want to last longer than a week, give me a blowjob. First, I get you used to the money, then I make you swallow. Was he serious? You look like shit. She looks better than a 10-inch dick, and you know it. I have a problem with pussy. I always have, and I'm always gonna. You can't touch me, but I can touch you. I'd really love to touch you. I know where you can touch me. <laughs> Man, everybody got AIDS and shit. 50 bucks a pop, you take them in the back. Touch and go. They touch, they go. You can touch them, but they're not touch you. That's good. Now, if they come, it's okay. If they take it out, come all over you, call a bouncer. Unless he gives you a big tip. If he gives you a big tip, it's okay. You got that? Okay. I'm escaping to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. Space!